Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to another AMP commentary. I'm John Ingle. And I'm Mitch Bryan. And today we will be talking over the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Close Encounters of the First Kind. Sighting of an unidentified flying object. Close Encounters of the Second Kind. Physical evidence of a UFO. Close encounters of the third kind. Actual contact. Columbia Pictures, in association with EMI, presents Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The director is Steven Spielberg, whose most recent motion picture, Jaws, is already a legend. The producers are Julia Phillips and Michael Phillips of The Sting and Taxi Driver. Creating special effects is Douglas Trumbull, who in this film goes far beyond his achievements in 2001 A Space Odyssey. For the music, there was only one choice, 11-time Academy Award nominee John Williams, composer of the scores for Jaws and Star Wars. The technical advisor is the world's foremost authority on unidentified flying objects, Dr. J. Allen Hynek of Northwestern University. Heading the cast is Richard Dreyfus, who has shown his rare talent in such diverse films as American Graffiti, The Apprenticeship of Duty Kravitz, and Jaws. And making his American debut as an actor is the great French director Francois Truffaut, winner of the 1974 Academy Award. A close encounter could happen to anyone. It could happen to you. It does happen to Roy Neary. An average working man, Neary finds his life, his very world, changed. Who are you people? We have very little time, Mr. Neary. We need answers from you. They're honest, direct, and to the point. Who are you, Have people? you fait récemment une rencontre? Have you recently had a close encounter? I want to speak to someone in charge. Une rencontre plutôt inhabituelle. I want to lodge a complaint. A close encounter with something very unusual. What the hell is going on around here? Who the hell are you, people? The title of the picture, Close Encounters of the Third Kind refers to an intriguing possibility. Well, a close encounter of the first kind is one is close, but nothing really happened. A close encounter of the first kind is visible contact with a UFO. Forget the shape and forget how fast it's going. It's something that you just can't explain. Close encounters of the second kind are those which leave a physical trace. Holes in the ground, fern rings, broken tree branches, telephone lines down, animals disturbed, the stopping of car engines. Then the close encounters of the third kind are the most interesting of all. Close encounter of the third kind is really when you meet them. 
the third kind. The experience of an ordinary man, shared by people from all over the world, irresistibly drawn by a compulsion they don't understand, to witness the most dramatic event in the history of the human race. And what you will see has never been seen before. Indiana town and leads to one inescapable conclusion. All right, Mitch. Well, another commentary. This time we're stepping into, we've been in Arnold Schwarzenegger territory an awful lot lately. We're stepping way far away from that and getting into the world of Steven Spielberg. And uh, our guest today is Todd Norris, filmmaker and huge fan of this movie. I think I think this is your favorite movie, isn't it? Yep, this is the one. If I had to say my favorite movie of all time, it's this. So that's going to bring a, a really interesting flavor to the whole thing, I think. <laughs> when did you first see it? Uh, I did see it when it first came out, not on opening day like I did Star Wars, which, you know, was pretty amazing, but um, somewhere within the first week of its release in uh, late 77. Did you see it in, in Denver? No, I, I was living in Kansas City at the time, so I saw it at the Glenwood, the old bit Glenwood big screen here. I, I could be wrong, but I think it was the first movie. That I think Star Wars moved out of the big theater over to Theater 2 to make room for Close Encounters. That's how amazing these films were. So I saw both of them on the big screen at the Glenwood. Was that 70 millimeter? Yes, or at least as far as I know, it was a 70 print of, uh, of Close Encounters. Do you remember, did you fall in love with it instantly? Like was Yeah, I did fall in love with it instantly. It kind of to the, it was strange because all the other kids in my school, of course, were Star Wars nuts, and so was I. But I was sort of a heretic when I dared to say that I thought that Close Encounters might be a better movie than Star Wars. That sort of uh, ostracized me a little bit from a certain group of people. But uh, yeah, it, it uh, you know, I saw Star Wars eight times at the theater, but I saw Close Encounters nine times in initial release. So I, it's one better. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> John, do you, what did I, you probably saw it on, on VHS, right? I saw it on VHS. Um, as uh, you know, I blind bought it as they'd say now I, I didn't rent it. I bought it from Walmart. I remember just anything Spielberg. I was going to be game and I'd always heard about this movie and maybe seen a clip or two. And uh, wow, yeah, I, I wore that tape out. I watched it so many times. I would even just watch segments when I didn't have time to watch the whole movie. I would just fast forward to the uh, to the uh, Barry abduction scene, which is one of my favorite, absolutely top five favorite sequences in the history of movies. Um, and it just always, this movie always has a really, really strong effect on me. It's like, it's, it's really viscerally effective to me. Um, the imagery of it, it just chokes me up a lot. Every time I watch it, I've seen it, I don't know how many times. And every time I watch it, my eyes water up, I get choked up, I have trouble breathing in different parts. So it's a special movie to me in that way. I wouldn't, uh, I don't know where it falls on my favorite movies list, but it's really something. It was a, had a great effect on my love of cinema, for sure. It's, it's an extraordinary feat, given how little plot the movie really has, that how it manages to sustain these emotions uh, and these emotional um, peaks and valleys 
with not a lot of narrative to hang it on to, and I'm sure we'll be looking at that as we talk through it about you know wh- where right. where is their plot and where is there just the the creation of mystery, which is the big engine behind the thing. So uh, what I want to suggest we do uh, as we look at this, I'm going to hit play and then I'm going to pause it after the uh, logo fades, the company, the Columbia logo fades. So, so Miss, Miss Columbia comes up and then she will turn into the seventies logo that we all remember. (laughs) Push into the seventies logo, right? Nice. And then as soon as it, fades fully i'm going to pause it there and so hopefully everybody else can do that Uh, my time counter reads 21 seconds but you know who knows whether Hmm. that's legit or not this is in fact the director's cut of the movie so i'm going to go one two three play one two three play and we're off and running so Mitch, yeah. I assume you went. You, did you drive down to Wichita to see this? You didn't. You never said how. No, you no, saw I it saw it in. I saw it in Hutchinson. I believe. Okay. I was. I, you know, I, I'm almost sure. I it, it was at the Cinema Twin Theater, and it was a date. It was my first date with this girl who became my oh. girlfriend. So she was cool. So it was okay. It was a, there wasn't too much tension, uh, <laughs> date That's tension while you're watching the movie. Right. That's great. Um, but I, I, yeah, it was. It was an extraordinary experience. I had a Super 8 digest of this. In fact, uh, as soon as you could buy one. A color sound Super 8 Digest, which had certain scenes cool. cut together. In it. So let's talk about how these opening credits and this music and the basically the cut to the first shot really is a thematic statement for the whole movie. You know, like literally let there be light. I mean, there's, you know, without getting too deep too early, you know, there is sort of a, a religious undertone to this whole film. You know, there's a very sort of, uh, you know, Christian, well, what is out there, kind of thing that 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 uh, you know, and we'll 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 talk about it later. But and of course, Schrader's draft uh, was a, a, a Job story, so it was very religious. He, yeah, he he wanted to make a religious movie, and there was this argument over whether yeah. it was more of a Watergate movie or a religious movie. All right. Uh, there's also this spirit of 2001, I think, being sure. evoked by that but sound. I, and I just think that opening cue that and that that music sting on that cut to bright light is. One of the greatest openings in cinema history. And of course I would say that because this is my favorite movie of all time. But I really do feel like this first 30 minutes is pretty near perfect filmmaking. Well, and then we come into this scene, which was actually shot after principal photography. There were a lot of reshoots. Um, Spielberg kept having ideas that he thought was going to make the movie better. And so this was shot after the fact. Look um, at the uh, just look at these dolly shots. These are these so dolly great. shots with with that fence, which evokes John Ford and that uh, framing. To, to yeah, and then and then the camera. Then yeah, I I've deconstructed this scene. The camera pulls back, and these other actors move in. Look at that framing. Anyway, and of course, I, <laughs> thematically, it's about communication. The whole movie is about communication. So what what do we have here? But nothing but interference. Right. Uh, between the dust storm, the noise, and the and fact do, that nobody speaks the same language. <laughs> right, right. It, it's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, the but sound, again, yeah, thematically just showing that it's all going to be about cooperation and understanding different languages. And yeah, the, and the, the spectacular the, voice of J. Patrick McNamara, who, who on all 70s movies that he's in, that voice is just is always present to me. Right. I was going to say the sound mix here, too. Uh, he doesn't seem to be that interested in the clarity of what they're saying. I mean, I think you could get by without 
knowing word for word what they're uh, trying to ask each other. Yeah. I think that's intentional. I noticed that the, the last time I watched it, that it was pretty overwhelming until Balaban comes up to the camera, basically. That's where we do want to start really getting some exposition. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter because, like you said, the thematic uh, idea of, of lack of communication um, is more important than what they're saying. Yeah, I think there's definitely uh, the influence of Robert Altman is all over this movie, too, that that sort of 70s multi, like everybody stepping on each other's lines and listening to multiple conversations at once was very trendy. And I, st- I really dig it. I wish that would come back. Uh, and of course, Francois Truffaut shows up. So for you young kids in the audience, you might not know <laughs> who that is, but he was a very famous French director. And Spielberg was insistent on having him play this part, right? It was a big, he, he wanted him from the beginning, didn't he? I think so. Well, Spielberg uh, idolized, of all the new wave guys, Truffaut, he always said Truffaut was his, the guy he he related to the most. And you could see why, if you've watched enough Truffaut films, you could see the similarities. But also having a French-speaking actor, um, this character being based on, on Jacques Vallée, the ufologist, uh, you wanted to have the French-speaking actor sort of speak to these people that helped Spielberg uh, bring reality out in this. Uh, Jacques Vallée and uh, and J. Allen Hynek being two ufologists that Spielberg talked to for reference. Uh, yeah. For, re- for to get some of the realism of what's really was going on with Project Blue Book and so forth. I, I do want to say one of the things I remember from the very first viewing of this film that I think made me want to become a filmmaker. There's a shot coming up where there's this, it's like right here I think where this flat that right there with a flap. Is right. In the, that's just a very 3D shot that stuck in my brain since a kid, and I was like, "Ooh, I've never seen that before." It's a little bit like the door flapping open and closed later on in the bathroom, right? Yeah, the door comes back and forth in the frame, uh, and this this was shot by Fraker, right? William Fraker shot this stuff. I guess so. I just learned that yesterday. That's and interesting. It's, um, and he's going to eventually be. Filming more stuff of people trying to climb up into airplanes with 1941. (laughs) (laughs) Can't get enough out, you know, can't get it out of his system. It's one movie. You got to do more of this kind of stuff. And Balaban really is us in this instant. He is articulating all of the confusion of the audience. So, like, he's our surrogate and our end to this scene. Yeah. Because we really don't have anybody else we can hang on to. You know, it's it's funny, Mitch. You were saying that, that your daughter kind of maybe mistook Balaban for... Richard Dreyfus, Dreyfus or something. Yeah, she thought it, she thought it was Dreyfus when we watched and, this last night. She'd never seen it before. And, and isn't like, it funny that both sort of audience surrogates in this movie kind of look like each other? <laughs> you know, when <laughs> in the B plot you get this guy that kind of looks like Richard Dreyfus. Yeah, that's true. Well, it's it's like the two bl- the two blonde women too, which we can talk about later as well. Right. I wanted to point out an acting choice Balban uh, makes, or a, a blocking choice if Spielberg directed him to do so. We just got it once, and we'll get it here again. That I've I've always found curious, uh, and that's when he when he gets confused or troubled, he starts to just walk backwards. Uh, he did it just there as he's questioning the guy. Where, where's the crew? Every time, every question comes with a step backwards, and we're going to get it again here. I think it's it's interesting. Yeah, a uh, bit of blocking for the scene because that I, that's kind of how you you would feel. <laughs> that's kind of these scientists that have been doing this for a while. These blue book guys, if you want to call them that. Their curiosity pushes them forward where this outsider, um, maybe not quite yet, maybe he's not quite ready to, to forge forward and get these answers. Yeah, because he doesn't know what he's walked into, right? He has no idea. Yeah. And, and as he comes to trust uh, uh, Lacombe, he'll, he'll go forward with him, but he has to 
get there first. He has to experience some of the stuff first. Where then with Dreyfus, you get the opposite, right? Like, as far as how his character, the narrative goes, he's always moving forward. Um, Diving in to get the answer. There you go. He's backing up again. Yeah, but it leads to this just great transition, you know, that he looks up into the sky and then there's the whiteout that leads to this transition to the close-up of the air traffic controller's uh, screen, which I... This was supposed to be the opening scene originally. I think the, in the original and, and, script, this was how it, the movie began. And it was the first uh, scene that they shot. And they were at a, a military aircraft, uh, air, air traffic controller out in the high desert. I think they were out in Lancaster or something like that. But, but they had to, this is a legitimate, this is a real, a real place. But they had to light, see all those lights come on the instrument down there? That's fake. I mean, you right. know, they had to do that to light the actors. So they're lighting the crap out of this scene. But I just, this is one of my favorite scenes in movie But history. the space is great. The space looks like a Ken Adam design or something. Yeah. It's really beautiful. Yeah. And then, the, you know, these are, if I understand correctly, these are mostly real air traffic controllers, right? He didn't, not all these people are actors, I don't believe. This, this guy, is this guy an actor? Because if not, I, he should have quit his day job. And I think one. he's that an actor. I think he's an actor, but I think he was local to the area where right. they shot this. And it's funny because you're right, he never was anything else in anything else again that I'm aware of, but this man is a legend in my mind. You know, when you see that guy's face, you automatically know who this is, and he's he's a hero. <laughs> yeah, I think that in the 70s, when everybody was so suspicious of authority figures, it's really interesting to see that, that that's not really who Spielberg is, you know? He's not De Palma, he's not Schrader. He likes these characters who are in authority and in control and running the show, and he said that um, even though there's an everyman protagonist in this, he had initial thoughts that the protagonist was going to be a military man. Or a mm-hmm. cop. I think originally it was a cop, and then it changed to a military man. And then he realized, no, nah, it should probably be just one of us. Right. We should as we should talk about the, the overlapping dialogue yeah, in this moment say, right here is just brilliant. Yeah, this is where Altman, <laughs> the Altman thing comes right back in again. Got lots yeah. of overlapping dialogue, and it kind of doesn't matter if you get every word of it. Um, it kind of it builds the tension a little bit to have them all sort of awestruck. These professional guys are starting to become slowly more awestruck right. by this. What's great is just this widescreen framing of those actors, but the focus is right on our, this guy, you know, it's, mm-hmm. we're always kind of right on this guy. Well, actually there's going to be this little cool dolly shot here where they pull focus and, uh, ah, what a great thing. I just love this stuff. All of these characters just sliding in and out of frame, you know, it mm. just feels so John Ford to me. And, you know, the cinematographer and me here, this is, you know, anamorphic lenses and what they do to the out-of-focus stuff in the background. Look at those those out-of-focus ovals. This is just classic anamorphic. It looks so good. Look how those actors are framed in a circle in a ring around our guy in the middle. See, that's more Hoxian. <laughs> there, we're squeezing. It, it is. Yeah. You're right. We're True. squeezing right. so many yeah. guys into the frame all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. And then when they cut to the reflection, you can see everybody placed just perfectly. See all the other people around. That just makes my heart jump a little bit when it cuts (laughs) to that shot. And that old school flicker on the screen because, you know, the frame rate's not quite matching up to the film speed. Right. Love that stuff. I always love the uh, the line. I was just going to say, I always love the line. Yeah, we don't want to report one of those either. I don't know why the way that pilot puts it (laughs) always stuck out to me. Sorry, Mitch. Go ahead. 
so the, I just this shot this shot always astounded me because of the fact that you can see the horizon light and the yeah. stars and yeah. the house and so obviously the stars are a, an optical yeah but you know what's interesting about it is and I'm probably going to get this wrong but there was a different approach to the stars in this uh, movie. And it's something about like they literally directly painted this onto the negative somehow, like they exposed it directly so that it wouldn't reduce generations. Something like that. I need yeah. to go back into my... But there was something about how they did the star matte paintings. I think that's a Doug Trumbull... That was a Doug Trumbull idea, that he was worried about the degra- degradation with all these, with all the mats, I guess, and didn't want to deal with that. So they did optical... Um, effects on directly to the negative. I think that's. I yeah. think he says that somewhere. Yeah. This scene is just it's it's hilarious and creepy at the same time. You know, it's just such a great opening. I I won't go into this throughout the commentary, but I did watch this with Archer um, the other day, and the, for those that don't know, he's eight years old. And this creep, this was creepy to him. Like all, <laughs> that, that monkey was a jump scare. And then he was like, "What is going on?" And I was just like, "It's just toys. It's just toys. Don't worry." He stuck it out, and he loved it. But um, he definitely this is this was his protagonist. This kid was his protagonist. I'm oh, telling yeah. you, he didn't he didn't really care all that much about Dreyfus, but he was always worried about where the kid was throughout the whole movie. There's a little foreshadowing to E.T. For whatever reason, yeah. uh, aliens like to drink Coke and, uh, <laughs> and I guess, beer, too. <laughs> Look at those old-style cans, you know, those yeah. before the pop tops or pop tabs. Okay, so I guess we have, we really should talk about how this was accomplished, right? We all know the story, right? Yeah. That they brought um, him into the room with a guy in a gorilla suit without telling him that was what he was going to see. And then the man in the gorilla suit... Right here takes the hat off to reveal that it's a guy inside. That's yes. how he got all these reactions. There was also an uh, Easter bunny suit. So there was oh, a was gorilla it? suit, then there was an Easter bunny suit. Okay. And then the gorilla suit guy took his took his hat off. Okay, so right. That makes sense because he's definitely got two two things he's looking at. But now what's she watching on TV here? <laughs> I yeah, tried I'm to not figure sure. it out the other day. I'm sure somebody knows the that obscure fact. Put it on the Facebook page. Since this is maybe a little bit of a slow point here for a second, I just saw that this house, this actual house that they filmed this, uh, is for lease. You know, if you want to lease this farmhouse, uh, it's available. In in Alabama, right? Yes. Mobile, Alabama. I remember getting to L.A. in 1980 and, and coming across people who uh, had all been working on this movie down in Mobile and in the incredible heat of that space that, that we'll get to eventually. It was just funny to be only three or four years away from the production of this movie. And you kept running into people who either worked on it or knew somebody who worked on it because it was really a big deal. This in a way is not, it's kind of like MGM and Ben Hur. Columbia was on the brink of collapse financially and they bet the farm on this movie. And it was a movie that they made for about 12 and a half million dollars. Special effects budget was three and a half million dollars which they were always afraid to even tell the studio that because the studios couldn't even imagine spending that percentage of the overall budget on special effects that really you wouldn't be able to see until after the movie was in the can right right 
Well, this is a scene that's probably our first introduction to something that is different than the theatrical cut. The theatrical cut, for whatever reason, had this really truncated, kind of clunky introduction to Roy Neary. So all of this is not on the theatrical version. And uh, it's funny because it's yeah. so charming. I remember yeah. when this came out in the special edition. Yeah. And, and uh, it was so, this is so funny with the whole business about their lives. Right. Lives at stake. Any well, answer will do. And that line of dialogue where he says, that's why I graduated high school so I don't have to do problems. I mean, it already set, lets you know about kind of his education level and his attitude. You know, there's lots of, de- you know, lots of information very quickly through the dialogue. <laughs> Look at this wide shot. This sort of deep focus, uh, you know, suburban domestic, <laughs> that, that poor doll in the background gets completely demolished by the end of this shot. <laughs> and it's really obnoxious. And if he didn't say you're close to death and get a, get a laugh, I think that yeah. it would feel forced. For me, a lot of these domestic scenes are right on the edge of being oh, yeah. just really hard to believe and hard to buy and kind of obnoxious. And then every so often there's a grace note that gets thrown in that, that makes it special. Yeah. I read that in terms of costume and art direction for all this stuff that they actually went through like uh, JCPenney's catalogs and then also just some fo- actual photographs of of real people and just this kind of bad 70s cacophony of, of stuff that, you know, it wasn't streamlined. They weren't supposed to look fashionable. Um, they look kind of intentionally tacky. <laughs> I will say that the state that their house is in is pretty relatable. To me, <laughs> if I took my one child situation and, and added two more children to it, I could imagine it being this crazy. I um, find it terrifying. Absolutely it is terrifying. terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it wasn't terrifying, but but it was also relatable. I believe the kid uh, destroying the doll, also just a point of trivia, is was Richard or is Richard Dreyfuss's son? I'm forgetting his first name. Or it's his nephew, right? Is it his nephew or his son? I, I thought it was I don't think son. it's his son. I think it's his nephew. Okay, J- Justin Dreyfus. Here, here we get a clue about the theme of the movie where they're watching the Ten Commandments in the background. Mm-hmm. So that's that's obviously a uh, an intentional clue as to how to interpret this movie. And they're about to watch the Red Sea part, correct? Yeah, isn't that the sequence they're about to watch? Which some some of the effects in the in this film are evocative of that um, sequence. Right. And I guess we should mention that he wants the kids to see Pinocchio. So there's you know the Disney reference that will pay off later with When You Wish Upon a Star. Right. The theatrical version had a different voice uh, on the phone, by the way. <laughs> Interesting. And some of these shots weren't in the theatrical either. I don't think these were. I think they cut straight to this matte painting shot right here. Add a little product placement for the special right, I was going to say Shell and McDonald's came along with a few bucks. <laughs> help them with that budget. It's interesting because you, you're not really grounded. The movie is still getting started, and it, keeps, sure. it has multiple beginnings. And so, yeah, she's trying to find her kids, so that there's an engine there. If you watch the theatrical version, you've basically seen Richard Dreyfuss go into work and be told he needs to go out and check this out. So I, I find it just really interesting how long the movie 
takes to start, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, I'm not saying I'm not interested. I'm just saying that it's right. a lot well, of setup. It's a Spielberg. Spielberg's really playing to his strengths by um, pulling us into these domestic scenes. Um, that's He knew it was one of his strengths after Jaws, all those great moments with the family in Jaws. He says, "Look, I can get away with this. I know I can. I've done it before. Um, I can. I can trust child actors. So I'm good with them. So I'm gonna. I can take my time and let you get to know these people and establish them before we even really get into the narrative. Um, I think that's probably had to be in his thinking. You know, typically people shy away from using child actors or hanging a movie. You want to get your movie kind of going before you start hanging it on um, scenes that require children." But I think he he had such a strength there with directing children that he could uh, get away with it. This is one of the the obvious famous set pieces of the movie about to begin here. This crossroads is a, a famous location in movie history. So I was going to say as well as something I'd never thought about. I'll get to it quick. Earlier when we when we open in the desert, the very first shot we get of the dust storm. The headlights come through the dust in such a way that Archer immediately said, oh, a UFO. And I never <laughs> thought that before. Wow. But now I'm wondering, was that the first little setup to this <laughs> Maybe. moment? Maybe. So I don't this know. this always gets a huge laugh. Oh, it's great. Uh, yeah. And my daughter said, wow, they didn't even have to do the rule of threes. You know, it was a one-two punch and you get a, you get a laugh. <laughs> Unless it was. Well enough. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I, I have to say they, they did shoot that stuff. Right, the exactly. After the movie was in the can, so very true. It's a happy accident. But yeah, I, this I, is. Mm. I was just reading about the use of light in this movie, and of course, you know, we're going to get a big, huge light here in the beginning. But what's funny is, right before that, so much of this storytelling depends on light going on or off, like the flashlight and that going off. So the, in terms of cinematographer being painting with light, this movie kind of takes that literally. Well, and you read about the production and the tension that existed between Vilmos Sigmund and Julie Phillips, and she, you know she she belittles him a lot because he was lighting everything all the time, and it's kind of like, yeah, that's what a cinematographer is supposed to do. They're <laughs> supposed to light the stuff, and it's really an extraordinary example of of film lighting. I mean, he really creates this unbelievable magic. Yeah. This scene was really intense. I remember uh, my heart rate when I first saw this being eight years old, really rising in this sequence. And, you know, like you guys, I've seen this movie a million times. And I, when I was in seventh grade, I actually did an audio recording uh, just my own dramatized radio version where I did all the voices. And I remember with my own voice making the sound of the crickets and the dogs coming back to life right here because <laughs> I remembered the order. It's it's uh, two little crickets, then there's a dog barking, and then the cicadas start back up, and then the radio comes back on. Let me ask you guys, the, that moment where Dreyfus uh, twitches a bit trance-like, there how do you read that moment is it just a visceral reaction to what just happened or are we he's supposed being, to read anything literal like that's where he's receiving the message i think that's where he's being implanted with the vision that's, that's how i've always thought of it i i see i don't want to think of it that literally but at the same time it's very hard not to 
Uh, there's something about it that seems a little too on the nose to me, but um, I think you're right. I think it probably could, does have to be that. This moment got a scare and a laugh. You know, this is yeah, Spielberg definitely. at his best, that uh, a combo laugh scare. <laughs> <laughs> well, two of them, actually. Cause yeah, right. With the... <laughs> then it happens again. When... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, you got you were talking about how Spielberg wanted there to be um, either military or some sort of authority figures be the lead. But if there is a, a, a fetish to this movie, it is radio chatter. Oh, you yeah. know, like pe- people talking on walkie-talkies and headphones and radio chatter. Um, and I inherited that. Like, I love that stuff. Um, well, it was there's a, just something so cool about it. It was of its time. You know, obviously, Lucas, I kind of feel like it started with Lucas in his first, in the first THX, meaning the student film. If you watch that, that's what kind of drives the film is this, the the sound design of the chatter. And then you get a lot of it in, again in THX, the, the, the feature film and then start all through star Wars. And the next, it really does seem to be a common theme. Also CBs were just a real popular thing. Right. My dad CB had 70s. one. My dad had one for some reason. And, uh, and you know, you had convoy movies like convoy and shows like <laughs> BJ and the bear and stuff yeah. like that. You know, everybody, had it was just CBs. a popular I, thing. I had, I had CBs. I remember sitting in my parents' car in the driveway on the, on the CB radio, yeah. not even going anywhere. It was a craze. I got my granddad a CB radio dictionary for his birthday. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the guy from Christine. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder what ever happened to these folks in the truck. Now this is a set. That's what you know. Like yeah. this is on a soundstage, and those those stars are painted in. Yeah, directly onto the negative. So this was a different soundstage than the one, the air the airplane hangar where they built. The Box Canyon, right? So they must have had multiple? I, I think so. I, I'm pretty sure this was a different soundstage. I think what's so interesting is the film delivers the UFOs right now. We, we were teased by those two really dark shots you know, the one in the sky and then the shadow going over him and then the yeah. light. But then it just, it's not fooling around, you know? It's actually going <laughs> to give up the goods right here. Yeah, it's, you would almost have thought that he would have followed his sort his Jaws uh, strategy and just done bits here and there until the big payoff. But nope, you're right. He just jumps right on it. And I think that's because we really need the awe of, of seeing them to share with Neri. You know, I think we have to share that with him for this story to work. Just having him tell us that he saw something and, oh, well, we saw a little bit of it. I don't know if that would have worked as well. Yeah, those effects are still impressive to this day. And, you know, it's a testament to Douglas Trumbull. They look great to me. That's what I was really struck by when I was watching this the last couple nights ago was how how clear and clean and beautiful everything looks. You know, it's still immediate. It doesn't feel like an old movie at all. It's yeah. really gorgeous. Apparently John Alonzo shot this stuff. It was something that I learned from Mitch last night. Wow. There were seven 
cinematographers that worked on this film. <laughs> I mean, Vilmos did shoot the lion's share of it, but even the crediting of the other cinematographers at the end, and there are a couple that's, that aren't credited, um, was apparently kind of a cheap shot by Julia Phillips to try and rob Vilmos from credits. Yeah. I've always thought this moment here was really weird and kind of out of place. I mean, it's like a joke that leads to maybe a guy's death. I don't know. It's it's really... Uh, this was in the reshoots as well. Yeah, but yeah. it just seems so over the top and kind of unnecessary. <laughs> it's very 70s, it's 70s car moment, though. I guess it? so. It's yeah. very, very Dukes of Hazard. Um but did that guy live? I hope he did. Yeah. Oh, the, the landing was pretty clean. Hey, you know who? You know who did that stunt was Craig R. Baxley, who later became a director. Right? He's he was the guy in the car, and I guess he overshot it a little bit and screwed himself up and had to go to the hospital. Oh man. Yeah. So all of these shots of characters moving toward camera, looking off screen, we we got to the point where we were watching it and we were yelling, "Look, a dinosaur!" <laughs> <laughs> because it would become his his signature move. That's true. Oh yeah. I forgot in terms of lighting in this scene, uh, and just blocking eventually when we'll, we'll get to it where they, uh, where he moves into, they move into close up silhouette. It's a great shot. So Terry Gar has a very thankless role in my opinion. Yeah. It's really terrible that she's just this shrew. See? And all she does is clean up after him and bust his chops. And uh, it's it's that, you know, it's the man-child wanting to escape from responsibility. And it's not the same as him going, dad going out for a pack of cigarettes and never coming back. But it kind of <laughs> is when you get to the end of the picture. I sympathize with her more and more every time I watch this movie. Every time I watch it now, I'm like, God, I totally get it. Her point well, of view. My daughter said repeatedly, what a dick this guy is. Yeah, he's, he is a dick. He's hip, he's somewhat hypnotized, but it's not necessarily an excuse. But <laughs> I used children. to when when I was a kid, I thought she was awful. I'll be, I'll be perfectly honest. When I was like twelve years old and watched this, I was like, ugh. Every time she was on screen, and I love Terry Gar. Not I don't think Terry Gar's awful. I just thought the character was. And I was like, man, what is wrong with her? You know, just being a dumb kid. And now as a 45-year-old man who has children, I'm like, what, a, what an asshole this guy is. <laughs> I feel so sorry for her. She's just trying to have some sort of order around her. They take her table away from her right away. She just wants that one space in the house for herself, and they take that away from her. She's very put upon. <laughs> I think those shots of the kids sleeping, they always remind me of crime scene photographs. Mm. The, the, one oh, with her butt, the one with her butt in the air is the first laugh, and then you go to the second one, and it's just like, wow, dead kids in bunk beds. It's, it's just really, something really sinister about it. <laughs> it is interesting how, you know, growing older colors our interpretation of this movie. Now, I don't have kids, so maybe I, I don't quite have the flip-flop that I've, that a lot of people I know have on this movie, but... Um, but it is true that the older you get, the less patience you seem to have with the sort of obsessiveness of Roy Neary. That shot where on her clogs as she's walking uh, mm -hmm. away from the car, my daughter said, that's a really weird shot. And it's a very I weird shot. I agree with her. I'm not quite sure what that shot means, but that's a weird shot. I'm kind of wondering if it wasn't 
they had to ADR something there. They just didn't have the shot. So they used, he had that and he had to have her saying that, but he didn't have a good shot of her saying it. I don't know. I, I always, it, I thought it meant that she was, you know, she was so in a hurry to leave that she put on these ridiculous shoes and, you know, it was just this kind of humiliating moment of. I always thought the line, don't you think I'm taking this well, was also like insulting to her. Well, he's like, well, well, you're implying that she would usually flip out right now, right? I mean, it was like, even when she's not flipping out, we have to we have to uh, suggest that she would be normally or, so, yeah. yeah. It's not a very well-drawn character. So here's our first scene that came from the special edition re-release in 1980. This was not in the theatrical cut. And I believe this was shot not in Mongolia, but... Somewhere outside of Los Angeles, somewhere yeah. Death Valley somewhere or something. Yeah, Death Valley. Yeah, and Alan Davio shot this, who would then later go on to do ET. And again, very seventies. It's very seventies to have cars just like uniformly hopping over a sand dune, and then helicopters. For some reason, I I cannot figure out what these helicopters are here for. But you know like, what? Why are it's they also... flying so low? And what are they? Why not just have one is... more car? It's know. also indicative of kind of a new style for Spielberg, though. In a way, I feel yeah. like it doesn't quite match the photography of the original and maybe it's because of these telephoto lenses or something but there's just a difference in in the look see this reminds me of like lethal weapon or something like you know the that whole sequence in the desert and it looks right. very much the same it was shot in the 80s yeah. you know right i'll have to confess i don't have much love for this scene cuz i don't think it really it doesn't give us anything new, and it, it it doesn't have Francois Truffaut in it, so it doesn't quite make sense. It feels like an added thing. I think you're right. Um, I, I, I'm not sure what it does. It's nice to get these different steps in their journey. We're getting closer and closer to something, but it does feel uh, a bit redundant after finding the planes. Like, it's almost yeah. the same thing. It's like, well, here's another Bermuda Triangle mystery solved. So desert. here's a magnificent force perspective shot. That is yeah. a very small model ship and model airplane or model helicopter. I think. And, and a, <laughs> I think it's a real helicopter. I think it's a real. Oh helicopter. man, that thing those was guys, moving those weird. Guys are, those guys are all the way back in the back. I think. I don't know. That helicopter's moving awful weird, but maybe <laughs> maybe you're right. This oh. was back when boats were fake and helicopters were real. <laughs> now in movies, everything's fake. <laughs> yeah, I think those are real choppers. And it's funny. Now we're back to the back to the movie. Now she's now she's gonna uh, you know keep the truth from him or That's know, right. all this stuff. But you know, like I mean, honestly, this is the case of the desire to conform and to not be seen as you know to not make a. Um, to not make her desire seems to be she doesn't want to do anything that would make her look foolish or to stand out in any way. Right. She's trying to reinforce the status quo, and her poor husband is looking like a crazy man, and she does you know she doesn't want to be humiliated and embarrassed by him. So she's burying the evidence, and um, which may not be realistic, and it may make her seem like a you know a poor character, but that's kind of the theme of the movie. And I don't know, you guys are writers and filmmakers. I mean, don't you feel that one of our maybe unjustified, but one of the, <laughs> if we feel persecuted as artists, it's that, you know, we want to spend time in our own imaginations and the other people around us often uh, don't want to deal with that. And, and so we kind of in our own minds 
create them as the villains of they're just, they're trying to bring me down. Yeah. No, I understand that. I feel like it can be done in a way though that you give a little bit more perspective to the other person too because just because you're the artist doesn't mean that you're um you're the more important person. Like it's not as if their perspective isn't also important. So I think it's a careful balancing act if you're going to tell a story like this. And if that's what he's supposed to represent, you know, as far as Spielberg, Spielberg flat out says that Neri is basically him, an avatar for him. If that's the idea here, then um, maybe, maybe just a little bit, taking a little bit more time to understand the other point of view would have been helpful. Because I mean, he goes from, she's hiding evidence to yelling at children about a camera to, it just makes her seem un, like an unreasonable person. There's nothing about how this character's drawn that makes me think she's reasonable. Even though I can look into myself and find her, uh, find sympathy in her, I don't think Spielberg even wanted us to feel any. That said, as I understand it, these scenes were all sort of rewritten by Jerry Belson, who came in, who wrote that movie, The End. I don't know if you remember that movie, the Dark Comedy. He was a television writer at the time. And they brought him in at the very, very end after the picture had been greenlit apparently for 25 grand to mm-hmm. come in and, and along with Spielberg there, uh, rewrite the domestic scenes to inject more humanity and more humor into all of them. Hmm. There are multiple writers that were involved with this, and Spielberg worked very hard in interviews in and around the time to not acknowledge anybody, and occasionally he got caught a couple of times. And so, so we know that um, Schrader did a draft, Julia Phillips says De Palma, contributed some ideas uh how what how barwood Bar, matthew barwood those guys yeah uh, yeah matthew the, robbins how barwood matthew robbins how but they wrote they wrote on it uh and jerry bilson did uh, then there was i think somebody did howard guy. sackler do something on this i don't that... know whether howard's i have not ever read that but could okay. could be but i never read that but maybe that was jaws it was definitely Jaws. Okay, I guess I'm thinking Jerry Belson. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me ask, as anyone, any one of those people, I'm thinking about what I know about some of those people, none of them have been married yet at the point this movie comes out, I don't believe. I, I've always found it interesting. I know Spielberg had not married Amy Irving yet uh, at this point, and it, can, it kind of shows. I don't think he has a, a true understanding of domesticity in this sense. So... And none of those guys. I don't. I know Schrader wasn't married yet. I don't think De Palma was married yet. I don't know. I'm just thinking it through. I just don't think that there's, uh, yeah, the perspective there, where it's maybe a few much, years later it, you could have gotten some. Yeah, it's very, and I think one of the reasons why maybe the movie resonated so much for me is that uh, I was eight years old, and it does seem to be it's coming not from somebody who's been married, but from somebody who was a kid of divorce. Right. And when I saw this movie, my parents were really like, they were getting divorced at that very moment that I saw this movie. And um, so there does seem to be some fundamental kernel of truth or something about how it feels to be in, in the middle of a family that's falling apart. Right. He doesn't, there's no failure on the part of the child, the children, the child characters in this movie. I don't, I think that actually, the moment Mitch mentioned earlier, the bathroom door, uh, that's all gut-wrenching stuff. Like, it actually feels very real. Yeah. And that and how that kid takes his father's breakdown and, and I guess, ostensibly the breakdown of the whole marriage and the family system feels very real. I just don't know if there's any perspective on the from the part of the woman. So this stuff here in India, this was photographed by Douglas Slocum, who would shoot Raiders of the Lost Ark. Apparently, yeah. apparently Vilmos... Sigmund got his shots and everything and thought he was going to India and then 
was told he wasn't. And yeah. I, that was and that was that. <laughs> and I absolutely adore this and always have. There's something about this scene. I love the the tracking shot there up the hill. It's beautiful looking. Yeah. But this is one of those moments where we cut from this um to this. This is where since the first time I ever watched this movie, my heart just stops. I don't yeah. when these hands go in the air, my, I always get <laughs> that chill and the tears in the eyes every yeah. single time I watch it. And then well, it's followed by a series cut of shots of applause, people come yeah. and people yep. coming up into the frame the same way as those hands came up in the frame. Yep. Is really exciting. And diametrically different kinds of people. Yeah. We got uh, Hindus in the desert cut to men with slip back hair and, and cat eye glasses and suits. You know, it's great. It's a great and some And some astronauts, right, that are mm. hidden. Don't we see them? Yeah, in, we do. In the foreground <laughs> yeah. in a long shot. And if you're looking for them, you can see them. They're, right there. there they are. They're all wearing yeah. the, There's the lady with the, the only woman, <laughs> the only woman scientist in the movie. Two. Which, there's yeah, two. The thing. There's it's two. really strange. They're like, where? why are there no women anywhere yeah. in this there's My two women says, there, I will say. There's a blonde okay, and a brunette right. at the end, but that's not still not enough. <laughs> I do remember some movie critic of the time really criticizing this movie and um, picked out this scene as an example of like, why would they be in a location like this? He said the movie is so unrealistic that they would actually rent out some kind of auditorium this big. <laughs> and that, that it, it was all about the grandeur of the place, but yet was not realistic at all. And in a way, I get it, but at the same time, you know, wh- I don't know. No. Uh, what do you guys think about I'll, that? I'll give it a real old-fashioned like film school answer, and say that's this. This is represents the the amount of people that actually have this information. When you look at this this area, the way the mise en scene, what it tells you, is very few people among all of us will actually have this information or this understanding about this. It's showing basically the empty seats are all of us and the people that will never know what's going on behind the scenes. That's my film school answer. If I, had well, to I think one. that, I think that's great, John. I think it makes total sense, even on like a dream logic kind of thing. I think there's a lot of dream logic in this movie. Yeah. And so yeah. that, yeah, the, the idea of that and also just going from one giant space to another giant space, one outdoor, one indoor, um, one filled with people and the other one, re- you know, reduced down to just this small group. I-, I think that's a terrific reading of it. Me too. As a kid, I didn't uh, quite get that uh, Melinda Dillon was supposed to kind of look hot in this scene, you know, with her. <laughs> now I do as a grown up. <laughs> really hot. She's so sunburned. Oh, I know. Yeah. So Melinda Dillon... She's kind of, this is a classic Spielberg character, right? I mean, we kind of get her again. I feel like we kind of get her again in E.T., right? More fleshed out, we're more with D. Wallace. But that single mother, where's the husband? No idea. Where's the dad? No idea, right? We don't even get a hint uh, in this movie. And it's something that, that Spielberg's pretty fascinated with, right? The single mother. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, definitely. And I think that it's super weird that Terry Garr and Melinda Dillon bear more than a passing resemblance to each yeah. other so it's kind of like this is the shrew wife and then this is the idealized single mommy that he can be on the same frequency with i mean there's the the psychology of this movie is i find it to be sort of infantile it is and i'm not saying that's a bad thing necessarily either but i i, I find it to be you know he's a boy child and he gets to stay a boy child, really. He he gets to I mean, go off with a bunch of aliens at the end and not have to 
return to any kind of responsibility. It's think, very American, too. Think about the one bit of parenting he does in this movie, which is our introduction to him. It's, I'm not going to help you with your homework. I don't have to do that anymore, which is a pretty childish response. And then how does he try to teach him the lesson? With a toy. I don't know how if that's too on the nose, but he's kind of a, he's kind of a man yeah. child right from the beginning. He sure is. Yeah, and, and, Spielberg, and, th- and Spielberg's defense, he has said that he he looks at this movie now and says that he could never have make he could never make this movie now because yeah. he has a family and he would never he couldn't imagine writing a character that would leave his family behind like that and that that would be a happy ending for a movie. Here's another very Spielbergian moment, this sort of collection of people, young, old, uh, you know, if you're wanting the Steven Spielberg stereotype, it's the slow dolly in to a, to that, that shot right there. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that's pure Spielberg. We've already gotten one. We got one earlier with, uh, with Melinda Dillon and the boy at the same set. That's, you're right. It's signature Spielberg. Yeah. What's cool is this scene ends on a reversal of expectation, of course, you know, and um, that it's not the UFOs. And this, you know, you're talking plot, Mitch, you know, this is the first moment that Neary seems to have doubt about the reality of what he's thinking is, is going on. So if there is sort of a, a back and forth um, struggle going on in, in Roy Neary's mind. It's whether, you know, is uh, Terry Gar and everybody else who's thinking I'm crazy, are they correct? Am I going insane or am I right? And it's the, right. the narrative question is, am I going to give in to society and give up my obsession or not? Because the audience knows it's, tr- it's real. You know, we're given the truth. It's like a Columbo episode. We know what's going on. Now, is the main character going to stay the course, be steadfast and follow his obsession? Or is he going to become like everybody else on the cul-de-sac and just give up his dream. That's where maybe withholding some information, I'm not saying it would be the right decision, but could have taken this this story a different way. Lingering on that shot of the, of the street sign shaking around, as in him processing, oh, this is kind of what I saw earlier uh, with, the, uh, with the mailboxes. Could it be that I'm crazy? Well, the fact that we know he's not kind of makes that shot, I don't know. To me, it's like, okay, I guess that question's there for him. But if it's not there for us, what value is it? You know, I'm not sure. But maybe if he hadn't shown us the UFOs outright earlier, maybe that, at that point we're going, hmm, yeah, maybe it is, this is going to be about a crazy man. I don't know. but Well, it's because we don't want him to give up. You know, we want to get to Devil's Tower. We want, we want to have our wishes fulfilled. And so the, mm-hmm. to me, the narrative tension is, is he going to give up? Which, of course, we know we won't, because that would be a dull movie, but that's the narrative tension. Well, I guess we have to see going forward. I don't remember ever feeling like he was, like, ever watching this movie where I felt like he was going to give up. But Oh, there's one moment. We'll, when we get to it, we'll point it out. But this is one of my favorite scenes, too, This because this is a, a big clue. You know, we get to have our Bob Balaban be the guy that figures it out. Yeah. Eureka. This was the only part of the movie where Archer was like, Dad, what is going on? Why are we watching these guys? I don't know why. But this was the one point where he seemed to get bored. And then I was like, oh, check it out. They're going to get a big globe. You'll love it. It is a dumb clue. You know, if you think about it, it's really dumb that that, that, that it, it ends up just being court, you know, longitude and latitude. I mean, how silly, but still. And then it requires, in a room full of really intelligent people, it actually yeah. requires a, a cartology. <laughs> 
a map maker <laughs> to figure that out. But yeah, it's fine. You, you need a re- eureka moment. And you got yeah. Lance Henriksen's there. So yeah. Oh, I do have to bring up, you know, in the pan and scan version of this movie, which is what the only thing I saw for a whole 15 years, poor Lance Henriksen is kind of cut out of the entire movie because he's always on the side of the frame that got cropped for TV. <laughs> it was only when I got the laser disc that I remembered like, oh, yeah, he's all through this movie. I bet you could make a super cut of shots in 70s movies where Lance Heinrichsen didn't make it into the pan and scan <laughs> between, between uh, uh, Network and um, um, Dog Day Afternoon and all these movies where he's just kind of in the background for one reason or another. Right. Sometimes has a line, maybe. Right. So also, did they have to get this globe to do this? I mean, surely there's a map. Somebody has a map in their car. <laughs> it's still good. That's it's good. It's good movie making. You know? Oh, it's great. Well, and plus, again, you know the 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 way those guys were rolling that thing down the hall like kids. I mean, again, mm-hmm. that just emphasizes the theme of the childlike wonder of the yeah. whole thing. And their disregard for the value of it, the disregard <laughs> of the privacy of whoever. I guess it's that one guy's office they're taking it from, but who knows? Maybe yeah. it's that guy's not I even want, there. Who cares about this guy's globe? We could make a side story about the guy who sues them later for destroying his globe. And get our nice little match cut here in a second. Yeah. It's a great moment. I guess we haven't mentioned John Williams at all and, and the uh, creation of this five-note theme that became famous. And uh, what I recall, and I'm sure you guys know this too, is that when Spielberg and John Williams were discussing the five, the, the signal, that three notes sounded like a doorbell, you know, and it was too little, but seven notes sounded too much like a melody, so they settled on five notes to be not quite a melody, but a little more than a doorbell. Mm. So everybody's obsessing now. Now we're we've gotten Neri with the uh, with the shaving cream. We've got her with the sketches. We got the boy with the tone. Everybody's locked into the message now, whether they know it or not. He's a little more attuned yeah. to it, though, right? He doesn't have the uh, he doesn't have the filter of of adult responsibility to keep him from locking right into the message. Right. I think, yeah, that's the idea is that, you know, the kids, of course, are not afraid of it at all. They have no fear. They And uh, something about being a child allows us to, uh, allows them to not be afraid. Which, which is a wonderful, like, dual emotional experience for a viewer. Because you see this face and, you, and your immediate response is, wow, the wonder of a child. And then you immediately realize what he's jumping headlong into and then you're terrified. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's... It's good horror, honestly. Um, a child that has no idea what dangers await, or at least perceived dangers await, is is a horrifying thing. Yeah. These uh, cloud tank effects, um, they were done basically by suspending dye into two different layers of water, like salt water and regular water. And I guess the guy who helped develop that idea was a guy named Scott Squires. And here's my little brush with greatness story. Uh, When I was first learning computer software like special effects, there was a program called Commotion that was created by a guy named Scott Squires. And I remember emailing him or on a forum asking him some questions about, you know, rotoscoping or something. And he answered my question. And only later did I realize, 
I'm taught, I just conversed with the guy who created the cloud tank effects for Close Encounters. I was like, oh my nice. God, Mr. Squires, I, I love your work. All right, so here's our, here's our money shot coming. Biggest, this is the, uh, this is the selling point image of the movie, right? At least yep. what I knew of the movie before I ever saw it. And it really is one of my favorite shots of all time. And I think Spielberg has gone on record saying that this image would, if he had to pick one image of all his movies that sort of signified himself, it would be this. And, you know, I don't think my VHS, I don't think I could make out detail at all on my VHS copy. I think I just saw light and that still was great to me. Like I didn't need to see the fact that there was actual, the actual source of the lights and you can kind of see the UFO back there in these high, in these high definition images, but it was still a beautiful shot to me. This is a great shot. You see her shadow, then you see her reflection in the mirror, and then the camera tilts down to the thing, and then a light comes through. All these, that's just, that's a great shot. And I guess this bit was added later. This is a reshoot where the camera goes down the uh, fireplace. I remember even as a kid thinking that the little boy, that uh, Barry acted, he was a little too unafraid, you know? Like, I, um, it's funny when a little kid would question the behavior of another kid, but I would have been pretty terrified. Yeah, but he's locked in. Like, Yeah, he, I guess that's true. He got the message and he's he's going off of that. You never knew that something that an un... That, screws could be so threatening this shot here where the screws unscrew like <laughs> horrifying and johnny mathis you know scoring it all in the background yeah apparently some of this stuff was reshoots they spielberg wanted to make this sequence more intense and they went back and had a small stage and reshot that that moment right there is a reshoot i think he learned a lot of that strategy from verna fields on jaws because i remember hearing stories about about them collaborating and her coming up with lists of extra shots for him to go out and get and i think Ah. that they did a lot of shooting they uh, julia phillips says they popped the champagne cork six times on this movie (laughs) <laughs> thinking it was they were done shooting because he would come up with new ideas that would that would be worth going out and doing that would make the movie better yeah crazy stuff another one here it's almost too much to handle for me when I was kids that was so beautiful <laughs> Uh, and she just loses track of him for a second. Always kind of wondered how she let that happen. Yeah. It's just terrified, I guess. This is a pretty intense sequence, for yeah, sure. It's amazing. I was worried Archer wouldn't get through it. I thought he, this one might get him, but he was fine. He loved it. He was a little. He was obviously very concerned, but I don't know if I would have seen it when I was eight if I would have been able to watch it, to be honest. <laughs> That shot still looks real. I mean, to me, that's that's a pretty amazing shot. It's incredible. 
And it doesn't take away from, if it doesn't look 100% real, it doesn't take anything away from it. It's otherworldly thing happening. It's fine if it has a yeah. little, yeah. Now, this scene was not in the special edition. This is one of the cuts they made to make room for new stuff, I guess. And it isn't really that critical of a scene, but... Uh... Hmm. I don't know. I think it really sets up well the um, government and public response to something like this, where yeah. she just gets chewed up immediately. Just yeah. no, no I regard like for her scene. feelings. And then, he, and then seeing him react to that, and then seeing her react to his reaction... <laughs> Look at those colors and that tie. Uh, that he, uh, that this whole. If anything looks seventies, my God, that powder blue elevator there and whatever tie Neri's wearing. Wow. And just and making her wait for an elevator. That's a that's a great touch. Her yeah. waiting for that elevator door to open with them just bearing down on her. It's a great <laughs> touch. Media man, fake news. And this guy really thought he had a good opener to this uh, this meeting. <laughs> so it's always to me, I'm like, oh, you really got him there, pal. <laughs> like, they didn't, that's not what they saw, so who cares? Right. <laughs> He's just such an asshole. He became now that a I look pizza at it, this... spokesman uh, in California. He became a spokesman for a pizza company. And he was oh, really? Play some, like, mobster, <laughs> mobster pizza guy. You know did what he I just... In Twinkle, Twinkle, Killer Cane. Did he throw oh, yeah. a pizza, pizza pan or something? That would have been a great tie-in. This is the first time I really noticed this is handheld. Oh, yeah. Least, that shot's not, but a lot of this is handheld. No, well, actually, is. that is handheld. Yeah, that was. No, the whole really scene. interesting. The whole scene's handheld, yeah. It's always wow. given it a bit of urgency and, like, news, newsreel kind of feel, I think, is what they're going for. Yeah, and shooting into lights so you get the flare. You get mm-hmm. those J.J. Abrams flares happening there. Good stuff. Now, the this movie is... shoots light into the camera from the very beginning. I think that's mm-hmm. what's so interesting about it because I think it... It helps prep us for what the UFOs are going to look like, which yeah. are lights blasting right into our eyes. Mm-hmm. So I think this guy is the um, the 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 Hynek, the J. Allen Hynek uh, uh, representation. Like this is basically what Hynek was to UFO world. Was this guy who was saying, who really did believe in the evidence and the witnesses and so on, but also always had to keep it diplomatic as far as not jumping the gun and saying there are aliens. Um, he, he kind of, he kind of rode the, the line between denial and uh, full on belief in, in alien life. So I think that's who this guy's supposed to represent. And he's a, he's a reasonable enough guy. Mm-hmm. J. Allen Hynek got pretty famous around the time of this movie. I remember yeah. him talking yeah. about him all the time. And the fact that I can remember that name. Right. Well, do these, you remember that all these years later? Well, see, do you remember that like promo film? It was a little bit longer than yeah. an actual trailer, and you know, Doctor J. Allen Hynek was the consultant on this totally. film. Yeah, he is in yeah, this movie hyping, later. They were hyping the movie in a in a very different way. He gets a big shot later in the movie. He's mm-hmm. actually in it for a moment. With the most unconvenient, you know, he takes this pipe out of his mouth and does that little beard mm-hmm. thing, and I'm like, okay, yeah, your acting career is over. <laughs> Now here, here's what could be a, a dumb question, but have you guys ever thought that this guy, we've seen him, this is the third time we've seen him, have, maybe it's the cynic or the, the mild conspiracy theorist in me that reads this guy as like a plant. Is he the guy here to make everybody else seem kooky? I don't know. It's just something that's occurred to me in recent viewings. I'm like, is that guy, he sits well, down with that like satisfied him. grin, knowing he, he, maybe he doesn't realize he ruined the whole meeting with his Bigfoot story. But, or is he a plant to make everybody else seem kookier so that they can ignore the, I don't know. Yeah, it is a weird beat. Yeah. Sorry, Mitch, what were you saying? 
Well, I was saying maybe he's all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. He, he is sort of a troll in this scene. They probably brought him into the meeting because he could help make everybody look more foolish. But he was out there the very first night True. to see those aliens. So they're like, unless he's <laughs> unless he's a double agent, but I don't think I don't know. No, maybe, I don't know. You're right. They were see which is speaks to the more the kind of conspiracy. If I'm I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but the kinds that I that I key into mostly are the ones of opportunity. So they went, well, how can we mess this up? Well, they're not sitting around conspiring and making up things. They're like, oh, yeah, get the guy that calls us every day. <laughs> Bring him in here. <laughs> the, the, that'll change the, the tenor of this meeting. So, yeah, maybe that is. You're right. That's a good way to read it. Apparently Spielberg liked that guy with the white hair so much that he kept giving him more and more lines. Yeah. yeah. You start listening to his lines, a lot of times he says absolutely nothing except just repeats what somebody else just said. <laughs> yep. I get white this, knuckles uh, just thinking about it. This upcoming John Williams cue that when they roll out is a great John Williams cue. It's one of my favorites. I think it's interesting how they walk this tightrope with these guys now because we were kind of, they were kind of the engine, the mysterious engine, but we knew what they were looking for. And so we were getting information that Roy Neary didn't have. And now the stakes have gone up, the kid's missing. And now they're being used as a way to kind of create more mystery again because they don't, we're never told exactly what they're up to now. We're always like kind of, yeah. they're always leaving one bit of information out. So it, it's an interesting suspense engine for the, for the film. It's, it's, it's mystery and it's suspense both at the same time. Yeah. It, the it's narratively, uh, it's great because you know, the, the question for Neary and I guess anybody who's been implanted with the vision is what is this thing that I'm drawing or sculpting or whatever? And, of course, these army guys, they know, they don't know they know, but they know it's the location. So when those two things dovetail, that's when we get propelled into a whole new act of the movie, really. So, yeah, this is building up the question of where are they going? What's going on? And how does this connect back to our A story of Roy Neary? <laughs> Piggly Wiggly. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, I grew up in a part of the country that didn't have Piggly Wiggly, so I, I just would always laugh my ass off right. <laughs> when I saw those trucks because I thought it was fake. I thought they were a southern thing. That's why I always thought it was weird that they were in Wyoming. But maybe there are some in Wyoming. But I thought Piggly Wiggly was south. <laughs> yeah. You know, of course, this incredibly iconic scene. Iconic enough to be uh, parodied on The Simpsons. Yeah. It's iconic. It's not necessarily my favorite scene, but it, I guess it is iconic. One of the things now as a cinematographer I notice is the use of split diopters yeah. uh, coming up where, you know, split diopter is a thing you put in front of the lens so that you can have two different areas of the screen be in focus. And uh, for better or for worse, what it ends up being in focus in the foreground on these shots is uh, Roy Neary's 70s uh, lamb chop sideburns <laughs> right <laughs> you'll see coming up yeah, yeah look at right that there. big close-up of that sideburn i will say though that this this scene seems to be possibly spielberg making a reference to the scene from jaws where you're getting it but you're getting an opposite reaction where you're where you're getting a man lost in thought we'll just call it thought for now uh in jaws for sure he's lost in thought and his son um, adorably joins him in thought, right? You yeah. get that great moment of bonding between um, Brody and his son. Where here we have a man not so much lost in thought, but lost in obsession. And we get his son's reaction to that and how kind of disturbing it is in the background here in a moment. 
and this is where the, this is where the older son starts to break down and starts to realize he's the one that's in tune enough with the family to know when things are really starting to go wrong. So I feel like Spielberg very possibly was having a little conversation with Jaws here, just showing an opposite sort of scene. Because to me, this is great. This is heartbreaking. And you're starting to feel uh, he doesn't want to lose his grip. I'm going to give Neary just a little bit of credit here. He doesn't want to lose his grip. He really just can't help it. This is pretty amazing considering the kid delivers. I mean, he's crying. The kid's really good. It's a split focus shot, so everybody's got to hold their position, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So there's a lot of, it's a tightrope. Yeah. Oh, I had a hat just like that, by the way, when I was little. I think it came from Worlds of Fun. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, they sold this at Worlds of Fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's he's definitely, you know, Neary's aware of the consequences of what's going on in his life and um you know i think i think these moments work (laughs) as artists we've all had this experience of having something an idea of what we want something to be and we just can't get it to work (laughs) like it's not right god damn it (laughs) yep 99 percent of the time Except I don't have a swing set in my backyard to run out to and scream <laughs> up to the heavens at when something I'm working on doesn't work. It's funny that the in the shot there that he has a star chart behind him, just a poster, you know, that you might have bought at Spencer's Gifts yeah. or something. But it's almost like saying, hey, your answer's right there, bud, right behind you. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Well, he's got oh, Star Trek models, too, at some point. It's kind of like, yeah. You, you, yeah. you got so obsessed with, with aliens that you decided you're going to become a Star Trek fan? That part know. that part really does bother me. Oh, you don't, it seems like there's... You think yeah, that's an like added when, thing, or that they're not something that they always had? Is that what you're saying, that they went and got those? Yeah, yeah. It, it seems more like a prop person's idea that somebody approved. Mm. and that. But in reality, like, really? You went to the store, you bought those, you put it all together, you hung it up on string, and that somehow helped you... <laughs> it made no sense. Those are like Erdl sets. Is that what you? I, I, I've never really thought about. It. I always just gone. Oh, look, the Enterprise and a Klingon bird of prey, and I've never really thought about it that much. I just yeah, assumed yeah, they were those toys. Are the ones the kids that you had. actually had to put together. So yeah. I, mm-hmm. I just imagine the unseen, the, the deleted scene of him putting that together with his tester's glue and putting the decals on. This is a scene this that is was going to solve it all for me. Yeah, this scene was shot originally but it was not in the theatrical version and it got restored in the special edition just as an aside the actual house they filmed this in um you can find it on google maps and it's so great to go to street view and actually see the neighborhood still looks the same in mobile alabama What do you guys think of this scene? I like the scene. I like the kid. Once the kid enters the scene, I like it a lot. I, I'm i averse at this point in my life to the concept of people just taking showers fully clothed yeah. because, that, oh, look how crazy he is. Like, what? It does I just seem don't cliche. understand. I think it was a cliche then. Too. Yeah, it probably was. When I was a kid, I, I, think I didn't think about it this whole scene exists so for the door slamming back and forth. I, I feel like that's what, that's what somebody's in love with and they... They like that. I like it. And the and the interesting reversal that 
it it starts with him locked in there and then it ends with her locked in there and him trying to get her out you know there becomes this flip-flop and he's so calm here all this craziness going around uh yelling screaming and he never quite taps into that he's he seems to be wanting to make peace. He can't seem... This is where, yeah, I get... So are we talking about here where we're... I don't know. Todd, you mentioned that there was a place where, where we're going to wonder if he's going to go on with this. Is It's it's the next morning. It's okay. the next morning after you. Oh, right. Okay. Now I know what you mean. Okay. I, I just... I struggle with the movie at this point because we're still going to have to watch him trash the house and throw all the stuff through the windows and all that. And it's, it's kind of like I'm, I'm... This movie is exhausting me at this point, you know? Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that this scene was only put in the special edition, and in that special edition, they cut out the scene where he rips up everything out of the yard. And um, you're right. I almost feel like you can have one or the other, but the director's cut, unfortunately, has both. Has both, yeah. That's a great shot right there. That's just a one of the best insert shots ever, that little dolly into the clay mountain. And this is a great time-lapse dissolve where we go from nighttime to daytime. And I'm assuming they just had two light cues. You know, this is all just on a set, and they uh, dissolve between the two. Right. And this is where he's staring at that thing, and he's saying, this thing's ruining my life. And he's having second thoughts, or at least yeah. just strongly desiring uh, to, to disconnect from this obsession. Yeah, and a, just a fantastic use of... Uh, the old Marvin the Martian cartoon to make our character realize that, oh, this is kid stuff. What the hell am I doing? This is ridiculous. Yeah. Apparently this house was so um, hot and they, it was just, everybody was miserable and they figured out a way to try to use dry ice and blow air over it to try to create a kind of air conditioning for it. (laughs) It was really, it was rough. Wow. Yeah, this is the part I'm talking about, John, where yeah. he's deciding, sure. all right, okay. this I'm stupid. I'm going everything's going back to normal. Can I tell you though that he goes back to back to being wacko so quickly. There, there we go. Yeah, like, there's the yeah. there's our Star Trek that <laughs> and they right. thought that that was going to solve it all for him but didn't work. Is it a reference yeah. to what was it yesterday's Enterprise? What was the name of the episode where Terry that Terry Gar is in the oh, episode, assignment Earth. Assignment Earth, and they come, and, yeah. and the Enterprise comes to Earth. Yeah. Fit, I don't know. I'm, I'm, str- way, this, I'm reaching. This is a, this is a great, uh, you know, plot twist or whatever you want to call it. This this new development here. Yeah, and as he comes into the light, it's really nice. Just and this place. little this dolly move, which we'll get to see kind of the real version of that of that move later mm-hmm. on in the movie. We kind of, we, it's really just great. You don't, you know, you don't need anything. You can totally see what's going on. Yeah, and this cut to the explosion. Yeah, the <laughs> so explosion. <laughs> it's just good filmmaking. I don't know. I I imprinted on this movie. This is the movie that made me want to make movies. So I it's I know it's biased, but it's difficult for me to criticize this movie because everything that it did became sort of my first language as to how to make movies. So um, my instinct is to just think that everything that this movie did is correct, and I know that's not true. But uh, it's hard for me to find fault in anything in, in this movie. I, I want to point out one other a character beat that we get there that's just super subtle, and you kind of have to maybe have some experience with family life to get it, is her waking up in the boy's room. And that between the two of them, 
I mean, the last time we saw those boys, they were both in tears, throwing one of them throwing a hissy fit, the other, well, hissy fit's not the right word, but very upset. And she clearly did the parenting. I mean, she's clearly the one doing the parenting. And she now went in there this, to talk those watch boys this down. Shovel action, you guys. Sorry to interrupt, but just—he almost cuts this kid's fingers. I know him. that oh. right there. Ter- so, if you watch this movie from the perspective <laughs> of a parent, you can see she's the parent. She's the responsible person. She might come off a little shrill sometimes, but she's got every right to be. Oh yeah, she's totally the- just. When she gets in the, when she leaves, she's totally justified. Yeah. Oh yeah, you want her to. When I was a kid, I was I, I remember thinking like, "Well, you're just going to leave your husband." Like it was all just black and white to me. Now I go, "Yeah, you got to get those kids out of there." Right. I mean, look, Roy, he just about cut his. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the biggest sin of the special edition is that this scene is missing, and I really feel like you kind of have to have this scene to really make to for her leaving to be earned. Like, y- you know, you see how nuts he is in this scene, and it's all about how the neighborhood reacts to and by getting rid of this scene it's even in the eight millimeter digest that i bought yeah this, this scene i mean the scene is is pretty crucial so without you guys said you know the bathroom scene maybe being a bit too much if to have both of them can you how does the scene work without that i mean that we lose our moment of doubt without that scene correct like how do we get that moment of doubt that's the prelude to this moment well, in the 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 bathroom scene is gone from the theatrical cut, right? But the but the next morning where he says every, all this stuff's coming down, that's in the theatrical. So what cut. what motivates that in the theatrical cut? Yeah, well, that's the thing. You don't. It's just him seeing that cartoon. He just it it, it starts with him hmm. getting frustrated with, and then and then he uh, wakes asking, up in the morning. Wait, you're asking what motivates him to want to give up? Yeah, I mean, so, the, clearly well, having previous, his... he still has you still have the scene with him. You know, I think something's wrong with dad. And okay. you still have him. You, you, you have it gotten, it got bad. It just yeah. got kind of worse. They, Julia Phillips used to talk about how Spielberg would deliver the bump at the end of the scene. And then he'd figure out a bump to top the bump. And so right. sometimes this film kind of says the same thing twice. And yeah. sometimes the first version is the better version. Sometimes the second version is the better version of saying something twice. Okay, I'm this with poor, you. This poor lady. Look at all the work she put into this, and this the, asshole is just This is just shitty. This is just where he takes <laughs> it He takes it out of his own house, you know, and, and starts invading his neighbor's property. Yeah. It's pretty bad. And now he, and now he's had it. Now he's completely had it. That's a great expression. It. He's, he's no longer upset as much as real sick of dad. I, lo- I love this. I love she, she, her knees are together as she's try, <laughs> trying to hold the kid and keep the ducks back. That was great. Yeah. And we're done. <laughs> and can't blame her one bit. This is for the kid's safety, if nothing else, but also for her own sanity. Sure. I mean, all of this is very understandable. Yeah. Although his ability to communicate is just unbelievable. <laughs> like he, in so many moments, he won't even t- communicate with what's going on. He's just acting like a maniac. And he, and then he s- s- turns off a switch. Like he's so calm right there. Like <laughs> it's amazing. He's, it's, it's, he's Watch like a master of manipulation. Right. Dreyfus does this fall. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Ouch. It's kind of dangerous the way his leg came down there. 
Honestly, though, you can you can look on Google Maps to Street View. Block still looks just like this. It's a different mailbox, though. That boat, but, uh, the boat still in the driveway. Yeah, I think so. Cool. No, uh, <laughs> probably not. The thing with this movie and Jaws and probably Sugarland Express, but I haven't seen it in a while, is Spielberg as this master of these single takes and blocking within the frame, and he's just. He he kind of stops doing it at a certain point. I mean, Raiders is beautifully put together, but this kind of a lot of the mise en scene and these long takes, mm-hmm. those don't exist in Raiders, you know. And so I don't know whether, you know, how his style changed, but he did get, he did cut a lot more as his yeah. career continues. Mm-hmm. I mean, this for example, this whole scene I think is a one isn't it? Uh, not quite yet, but coming up. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, which again, it was completely butchered in the pan and scan version. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, we'll, we can talk about it when it happens, but, uh. Oh, right. It's the next one. It's after the, it's the. Yeah. This reveal that's coming up definitely was not shot with TV in mind. Was it? No. If you think about how it's framed up. The other thing that's interesting about the TV report is the guy says, um, order your steaks, well done, Walter. I don't know if you've noticed that. Yeah. But it's Howard K. Smith who's doing the lead-in that's before right. they go that's to the right. shot. And then later on, they make another reference to Walter Cronkite. So my guess is Spielberg figured he was going to get Walter Cronkite. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't, so they, they got couldn't. Howard K. Smith instead. Right, because Walter <laughs> Cronkite probably said, I'm not going to whore myself out to a movie, um, you know, and because... He had, cred- right. he had credibility, right? Not That's like so Wolf fun. Blitzer, you know, who's in every movie and <laughs> right. what we've the, what we've reached now, where there is no such thing as journalistic integrity. You know, the, where everybody's in the movies faking. Right. Yeah. There's the thematic shot of him, sh- you know, shutting the curtains on suburban domesticity, and you know. But here comes the big shot that we're talking about, which is just fantastic use of the frame where we're getting not only critical exposition, but also narrative tension because the answer is right there for the viewers to see, but he can't see it. So in this kind of Hitchcockian suspense way, we're waiting for him to look at the TV to see the connection with the uh, mountain dominating center frame. And yeah, so we've got this triptych going on. Just really fantastic. And if you try to listen to what he's saying, it's kind of, it's really interesting how it divides your attention. You can barely focus on what it is he's trying to say because you're watching the TV and you see the mountain. Yeah. And he's still, and on, on the phone, he is somewhat normal, Roy, trying to keep his family together. And then this point of obsession is right in the middle of it. And on the right, we're about to get the thing that's going to completely disconnect him. From, from this point on, family's completely gone. Yeah, but talk about, look at this blocking. It's almost comical. It's like, just turn your head, yeah. look at the screen. <laughs> yeah, so in a way, what he's saying on the phone is irrelevant. It's yeah. it's just, you know, it's the story's being told visually right now. It's really great. Order your steaks well done, Walter. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Double take. So she's in a is she in a hotel room? That's the, yeah, yeah. So she's in a in the southwest somewhere. 
we get right. by the cactus. Right. Um, so Texas or the Southwest or somewhere. So she's on the she's on the hunt. Like there's another movie going on where she's she a detective story where she's on the hunt for right. the kid. I guess. It's always Might be a more interesting it. movie. You yeah. Know, I've always it. found this composition to be just a little too mannered for me. The way that she poses against yeah. the wall. Mm. It's it's a little much. Yeah. Boom up. Still all the clutter in that room. So, Mitch, in terms of screenwriting, is this the midpoint? Is this the third act? This is where we talk about just how one of the reasons why this movie is interesting is that it's sort of um, is disorienting in terms of traditional three-act structure. Yeah, because we're really past midway through the movie. So there's these, these multiple kind of middle-of-the-narrative turns. Barry gets abducted. So for me, that's like the midpoint for her story, right? And it happens mm-hmm. just shy of an hour into the movie. And then you've got the press conference where there's this, you know, public recognition of what's going on or denial of it, right? Mm-hmm. And then in terms of his midpoint of his story, it's really the break with his family, right? When they split, when she leaves. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is then followed by the bump and the bump. It's followed by the, the realization that it's Devil's Tower. So now we are fully into the second half of the movie. But the the middle of the film is a about ten minutes to to get. You know what I mean? It's not mm-hmm. one. You can't point to one moment. And say that's the midpoint. You you point to a series of scenes that are all turning the individual subplots from A to B. Yeah. And this has a nice resonance these days, doesn't it? With yep. the coronavirus, gas oh, masks, yeah. and panic, and all this business. Yeah. Would it be so easy that we could just have a bird, yeah, a little box, a little cage, bird cage, so we could know whether, you know, <laughs> that's right. Why well, even my dog wears a gas mask? So Spielberg and boxcars, right? We're getting some Schindler's List yeah. training, <laughs> <Yeah>. leading, <laughs> oh, leading up to that. Uh, Crowd scenes and trains, and and uh, it also reminds me when the guy climbs up on the boxcar. Reminds me a little bit of Bound for Glory. Yep. About 15 years ago, I believe it was Alamo Drafthouse, uh, did a thing called the Rolling Road Show where they would play movies on a big inflatable screen at the location that they were, where the movie was filmed, like they did Bullet at the scene in San Francisco where the car chase was filmed. And they showed this movie at the front of Devil's Tower in Wyoming. Right. And, and I made a pilgrimage there with my wife and uh, with my friend Paul Roberts and uh, another friend named Joe, and we all drove out there. And um, it was a very interesting experience seeing that movie uh, on a big, giant, inflatable screen right in front of Devil's Tower. But um, if you ever go there, be careful of the speed trap. Uh, you know, the, uh, the police force there is just waiting for your tourists to go down this one hill where you basically have to completely ride the brake or else you're going over the speed limit. So Yeah, they're just waiting for everybody to drive through fences, too. Yeah. It's like they're they're <laughs> got right. to stay on the lookout for <laughs> for that. No fence plowing, please. <laughs> I'm very impressed with the station wagon. Um, yeah. It goes through quite a beating here. The the best moment comes like we get these beats where they they're driving, you know, kind of terrified. First they have to make this decision to drive through a fence, and then they're doing it. It's kind of harrowing. 
And as it goes, I love how as it goes along, we'll see later they just get really used to it. Like, yeah, yeah. See, there's a shot later where it's completely unnotable that they drove right through a barricade. And yet, multiple moments where he's not watching the road, looks up and has to hit the brakes right. because he's going <laughs> to run into somebody. That happens like three Spaciest times. Spaciest <laughs> driver, this guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great shot. Oh, this this moment right here is really. Uh, yeah, you're not going to go fantastic. through this one, are you? But we go from a pullback, right? The camera pulled back there to a push in. And uh, again, classic Spielberg shot. But, and, but I really think this sequence with the music and everything is magical. It is. But now Mitch has me thinking about dinosaurs. He had to say <laughs> that earlier. Now, and now, I, now I'm like, is, if this thing didn't have a roof on it, they would have stood up and Laura Dern would have seen the brontosaurus. Mm-hmm. So what do you think, Todd? Did um, the art department build that berm? Don't you think they probably did? That, this that right earth, here? Yeah, that earth looks pretty pretty turned. Yeah. Don't you think they probably, they probably uh, yeah. pulled the, moved that in there so they can get this shot? Or modified it. Yeah, you're probably right. The other but, side uh, of it looks pretty. So, you know, you start to see some older ground there. I don't know. That's, that's pretty fantastic right that's there great. with the music and everything. And even this, this reverse here, that, just the way the barbed wire has this kind of chaotic look it's it's really great and yeah so what do you think if we if performance wise what do you think uh of the film let's say that she's not there let's just say we're just following neary for some reason don't don't you think she kind of carries him along in a way as in we love her and we feel for her so much she's actually there's that shot i was talking about that her wonder and everything we're like 100% 100% justified having, well, we could forget, she kind of helps us forget that he's a family abandoning <laughs> asshole. I, again, you know, this is this is that problem with 90% of 70s cinema. And I love the 70s, but 90% of the time, female characters exist only as a way to access the male emotions. Right. And that's... That's not, that's not cool. Yeah, <laughs> that's not so good. But in this case, I'm I'm accessing her emotions. I mean, I feel for her more than him. That's what I mean. Like if on this journey, I'm yeah, more but, with but, her but, at this but, point. But what's important is is him. Like true. The truth is, is that it's important you get to his emotions, and so if, by feeling her emotions, it moves us closer to him. Right. That's, that's what I'm. That's what sure. I'm suggesting. Sure. Now, and we mentioned earlier when we see her in the hotel room, and we discussed you know whether or not she's out looking for the kid on a detective mission we and todd suggested maybe that's the better film i mean maybe it is maybe her i feel like today this is amy adams or someone and we're and we really are with her probably for the whole movie right far more i Mm -hmm. think that we realize now that it's far more interesting and far more universal for like a mother to lose her child and then go on search for her child or than it is some dude getting obsessed with something. I don't know. I, I like to think that we're getting further, you know, to where that's more of uh, interest than it used to be. To where I it's... love this moment. So you've got to figure So he just sprayed him with something and you didn't yeah. see spray him, yeah. which is so sinister. Uh, yeah. That's really sinister for the fact that we don't see a whole lot of other sinister stuff necessarily. Like right. the, the way they come up with the plot to clear the area is pretty casual. And this edit's great, by the way. This The door slams shut yeah. and then we cut to the opening that's a very Spielbergian thing. I mean, other directors have done it too, but it's always a nice transition. One door closes, another opens. Right. A lot of 2001 in this scene, uh, when they 
when uh, Truffaut and Balaban start talking to each other with Dreyfus right there in the middle is exactly like that shot in 2001 where they're Frank and Dave are talking with Hal in the background. Yeah. Oh, I there's think... there's Lance Henriksen again, right yeah. there on the right. But not on VHS. Is. Nope. <laughs> I think the other thing that's interesting about the visual design of this movie and the cinematography is is how sharp everything is most of the time. And it's kind of amazing that they could do that and have this really sharp kind of hard look to it. And then the spaceships are completely dependent on soft light, you know, the flare of the lights mm-hmm. into the camera and it's the typical Blade Runner, Douglas Trumbull kind of, you know, yeah. kind of effects. And I think it's really, really interesting, especially when you think about, it just speaks to the latitude or the, 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 the variety of, of, of visual um, things that the cinematographer over his career, I mean, he shot Heaven's Gate, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, which is soft and diffused and dusty, and it's just so yeah. interesting how how he he's really an amazing cinematographer. Yeah, well, and like in McCabe and Mrs. Miller with that flashing technique with the you know so that there's low contrast really look. Yeah, he yeah, did, and then all really those long mushy lenses in mm-hmm. McCabe and Mrs. Miller, everything is mushy. This is where I think, you know, we're maybe starting to reconnect to Roy Neary a little bit because uh, instead of him just seeming nuts, now it's more of a case of, you know, the annoying authority not allowing him to get the information he deserves. So we we identify with him more, you know, this like, what the hell's going on around here? I totally agree. I think having him be the underdog now and him being smart and being rational is, for me, way more fun to watch than the irrational. Yeah. And it's an interesting choice that, you know, a, a lesser film would have him confronting guys in uniforms, real obstinate authority figures, where we get the most agreeable two guys you could get yeah. in the room for him. It's still frustrating, but he, but we're going to get somewhere here, at least. Right. And we're going to get him some allies, because that's what, oh, yeah. other than her, we, he has no allies. And so here we're going to get some that can actually help him a little bit. And yeah, you're right. There's the 2001 for sure. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, the, there really aren't any definite villains in this movie. I mean, um, Major Walsh and sort of the army trying to get everybody out of there are technically the antagonists, but there isn't really anybody villainous that's trying to, you know what I'm saying. It's it's a sort of villain-free movie. Yeah, and even Truffaut's character it must have been hard as an actor to kind of logically work your way through these turns that he makes because you never know whether he's an enemy or a friend and how deeply invested he is in the ruse until the very, very end, you know, when he's like, they were invited, they were supposed to be here. So it's, I'm sure he got frustrated for a number of reasons on this movie. I know he thought it took too long and he didn't have much to do. And then his character isn't particularly well drawn yeah so there's a gift shop here now of course where you can get tons of close encounters memorabilia if you show up to this place gas masks can you get <laughs> bird cages and gas masks maybe hmm 
there's a uh, sort of montage of faces coming up as he looks at everybody in the helicopter, and it again makes me think of the Grapes of Wrath and John Ford. Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> like all this stuff, all these, all these faces. And that's our old man from way back. Yeah. The helicopter scene earlier. That looks like Rob Lowe on the right there. <laughs> Bunch of pans. I wonder what Barry Sonnenfeld was saying. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so lazy, these pans. Oh. <laughs> See, there's Lance Henriksen again. <laughs> See, that's he's, it's funny because we're funny. doing this on Zoom. And every time you bring yeah, him up, so I only funny. could see the bottom part of his body behind your guys. It's oh, like okay. it's like illustrating it even further. Right now, I can't <laughs> he, I can't actually see him. <laughs> that's so weird because it's perfectly framed for me. Oh, know. interesting. He he was hired basically to be a compositional element. I, I that's my I'm convinced that it's, you know his character was written just to have somebody on the corner of the frame for balance. Oh, he's doing something. Yeah, there you go. we need to talk Great about job, uh, <laughs> Francois Truffaut's English is so uh, not good that <laughs> I still, there's quite a few lines of dialogue that I still don't know what the hell he is saying. And uh, there's a line coming up where he says, they belong here more than we, you know, and it's, they belong here more than we. And, and like for decades, I thought that was, he was speaking French, but it turns out that's English. He does say a couple of lines in English and Balaban translates them in English. I mean, he, says the, <laughs> he repeats them basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look how red his eyes are. Yeah. So I would say that, you know, if you're talking about basic structure, that maybe this is kind of where the third act starts, where they finally, you know, bolt and they're making their way towards the tower. I would agree with you. Okay, so here we're going to get a... We're getting the introduction to a character here that I always find very um, entertaining. Is his name Larry? Is that his name? Oh, the other guy. Yeah, is that, <laughs> something I think about that's him his name. cracks me up. He's like immediately from the first moment you see him there, just laughing his ass off, and he seems to be having <laughs> such a blast going through this little adventure until until he doesn't. But right. uh, something about this guy—he he seems like a real guy. I guess maybe I think he's but, in all the president's men, isn't he? I think he he's looks in a couple of other seventies movies. He looks really familiar, yeah. But something about his place in this story, where they are in a very serious story, like uh, Neary and um, and Melinda Dillon, where he's kind of tagging along and just ch- laughing it up and making jokes and ignoring the danger <laughs> and something about him. Well, he he very reminds bizarre. me a little bit of Richard Jenkins, or maybe Richard uh, yeah. Jenkins reminds me a little bit of him. You know, yeah, yeah. That, that type of character actor. Oh yeah, he's, yeah. I could see Jenkins wearing a sweater like that too, for sure. <laughs> well, yeah, he's got those glasses and those pants. I mean, he he um, God, he looks like he should maybe be in a Cronenberg movie. But look, he, or maybe he looks like David Cronenberg. I don't know. Yeah, that seventies sweater, that that Judd Hirsch ordinary mm-hmm. people kind of sweater. Yeah. Hey, the Lost Ark is in that. I know. I was left. just going to say that. That <laughs> seems like a precursor to the Lost. <laughs> Yeah, they do some serious weaving in and out of those barrels that maybe seems a little unnecessary, but it looks good for camera. 
So he looks like he's having a good time, and he's an affable guy, and he's like, come on, let's go up here. She broke her ankle at one point, I guess, going up these these mountains. Yeah. You know, when I was there, I had to try to climb as far as I could up Devil's Tower. You know, you can go so far, and then you got to stop, and only the professionals can go any farther than that. But, you know, I did my best. They said they were hearing rattlesnakes all the time. They'd be up there climbing and working, and they were there were snakes just rattling away. Did you hear yeah. any rattlesnakes when you were climbing? No, I, I didn't. Um, although now I now that I think about it, I think there might have been some uh, signs telling you to keep on the lookout. There's there's Henriksen again on the right. See, he's always just poor guy was cut out of cut out of the movie. Wow. He's packing some heat though. He's got a he's got a pistol, so he must have felt good about that. Yeah. <laughs> this is all a one take. Now that I think about it, this is all one shot. This whole moment. So we found out what happened to the livestock. Probably the little... That guy probably had a little spray bottle of EZ4 when he got the birds out of the car. Mm-hmm. They belong here more than a, than yes. <laughs> they belong here more than we. There's helicopters down there in that shot. I mean, just think of the coordination it took to shoot these shots. This is a very expensive movie. Yeah, you can really see it at this point. And then apparently they decided, well, we also need to have it get darker as we go up the mountain. And so every day they would, at a certain point, everything would stop. And they'd just do the climbing and flying up the mountain. And they'd do that every day to get the light to match. Like Soderbergh with his uh, beach fight in in that oh. in, in the sunset movie where he has the fight at, on the beach at night. At, yeah. At Twilight. You're right about this guy. It's just so funny how he enters the story and leaves. And, and uh, he just seems to be kind of having a great time. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, it's kind of like Jeff Daniels in Something Wild. Maybe this is the great adventure of his life. <laughs> it you is. Know? And, uh, sure. So tell me, there, when, there's a shot when we get up here, and there's a guy on frame left on a walkie-talkie. The mustache. And is it Dale Dye? Oh, man, it might be. Right there, because yeah, on the left. It that, would make total sense. He would have trained these guys, or this would be his little team of guys. Or this is where he started, and then maybe. You know, but I wonder if that's. I should hmm. look. I didn't look it up. I should look it up. This is another scene with overlapping dialogue. You know, professionals, professionals talking over. It's all I talkie talkies, etc. Sorry, I just typed in Dale Die on my um, phone, and the picture that came up immediately tells me yes, that's Dale Die. I don't even have to. <laughs> I don't even have to look and see if he was in Close Encounters. That's got to be him. It makes perfect sense that he would. It's just funny too. when these pop up. It's like Arlie Army is in Apocalypse Now. If you, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Now it's getting darker. So, Todd, the, the it must be really an impressive structure, like in in for real, right? It, the, the those serrations along the side of the mountain seem just. It, yeah, it, it really is. And and what's interesting is, um, you know, when we watched Close Encounters in front of it, when they started it, the mo- it was dusk. You know, they didn't wait till full dark to start the movie. And there was just this moment where you see this big 50-foot inflatable screen, 
And literally right behind that screen, you suddenly see the silhouette of the real Devil's Tower. And um, it was a sublime moment. I mean, it was, it, it took my breath away. And, uh, you know, as it got really dark, it actually just disappeared and you couldn't see it because um, it isn't really in an urban area. So there's no lighting and it just went away. But at dusk, it was really, really impressive. I will say that shot we just had of the helicopter taking off. Um, I do. I think they borrowed that shot for for Rogue One. I think it's almost the exact same shot in Rogue One when they take off from the Yavin base and there's a the general mm. standing down below watching their ship take off. It's almost exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Anyway, just just a thought. Here comes the easy four. Oh, there goes your birds. That tells you what happened to that bird. <laughs> Wonder who shot those inserts. And you see, now, here's where Larry loses me. <laughs> because how could he be so naive yeah. <laughs> as to think that this, this isn't meant for They're us? Just crop dusting, yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. This is clearly not meant for us. And then he, well, oh, he's from, he's from L.A. So he's used to the mosquito sprays, that, right, that they used to do over L.A.? That shortcuts yeah, so. Altman, going back to Altman again, in the movie Shortcuts, they're doing that a lot. So that's mm-hmm. why he yells Los Angeles at the helicopter. Yeah. Now I get it. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. <laughs> and now we're on a set. Yeah. This is this is a soundstage. And that was a model, right, that we had. Yeah, you know, I guess that is too. Yeah, it's some pretty impressive stuff. I mean, that looks kind of fake to me. No, does, you know, so this ridiculous falling down yeah. is not really much of an incline. It, it seems to me this is Spielberg working very hard to do a little tip of the hat to north by northwest right oh for sure oh yeah i guess i never thought about it when i saw north by northwest for the first time in a theater uh and there's uh james mason's got that landing strip house somehow miraculously right by mount rushmore it made me realize how much this whole area right here this section of the film is all about North by Northwest. And they even say we have signals coming from the North Northwest. Right. Yeah. 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 I got to say, I've never picked up on any of that. Never thought about it. Oh, John. I don't know. And I just always, I do find this annoying. I'll be honest. I find this part of the movie annoying. Yeah. It's pretty obnoxious. I was like, why is this happening? And he doesn't, how come he's having, he's climbed this far and he's having trouble here. See, (laughs) she's using her to access his emotions. I don't know. It worked for me when I was a kid. I think Melinda Dillon is, she really is one of the great actors of the 70s. She's, she's, her performances are always, I find them always to be so honest and emotional. And I just think she's a really fascinating actor. So here we are on this big set. So do we need to mention about how they accomplished this? Sure. Well, so it was the size of a football field and it was in a huge, aircraft hangar in mobile alabama a set that is so big and it was so hot that they would actually have little condensation rainstorms for yeah in there. It, it had its own weather it's i talked to a guy who worked on this set the whole time and he he was he said it was absolutely miserable and it was the at the time at least the largest aircraft carrier in the world right i believe aircraft like, hangar. aircraft hangar in the world so 
Good, good choice, I guess. Well, I know the they set. looked at two. They looked at the two biggest stages at Columbia, and they were like, "And Joe Alf said this isn't big enough." Wow. I said, "What do you mean it's not big enough? This is where this is where they did Camelot. We all the Camelot <laughs> fit into this thing. <laughs> it's like, no, not big enough." And and also there was incredible pressure uh, from the studio at this point because there was nothing to react to, and so. Vilmos was lighting everything and providing the light where the light needed to be. So they were thinking in advance of where the effect would fit. And he they just gave him a lot of shit for spending all his time adding lights here and there. Yeah. They just formed the Big Dipper. And believe it or not, I never really noticed that before the last time I saw this movie. Oh, wow. <laughs> those are those are meteors left over from Jaws, right? Mm hmm. So I guess since we have some time here, since we do have a long wind down or wind up to the end of the movie, um, you know, one of the things that younger audiences forget about this movie is that when it came out, this was really the first film to portray aliens as friendly. I mean, you can make exceptions like the day the earth stood still, et cetera. But, you know, what people forget is that the friendly alien was trope was basically created by this movie and so i think you could have that sustained sense of mystery in the first act and all the way up until now as to what the intentions of these aliens are i mean even now uh, in this part of the story we're not um we're not sure of the motivations of these ships and that's part of the narrative tension and so the the reversal of course that they're not bent on destruction or you know colonization of the earth but they just are saying hello and they love us that was kind of the big you know the the high concept of this movie and they kept that secret you know that wasn't indicated in any of the trailers at all the mystery was kept until you saw the movie as to what was going on i don't know any any thoughts about that the secrecy surrounding the production of this movie was really extraordinary and it set a template for spielberg who would maintain secrecy on all of his movies, you know, right up until now. But there was a, they were really guarding everything very, very closely. I, I also think that I'd be remiss to not mention that that little red light that trails after them is Tinkerbell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Just wanted to say that. That little pan shot where they, they pan in that shot and the, to reveal the UFOs at the end of the landing strip that was done before motion control existed. It's easy to do now, but back then that was a very sophisticated shot to be able to track the ships in a in a moving camera shot. So I thought they that there was some motion control that was being used in these scenes when they were but am I wrong? Well, no, I think you're right, but it, I guess what I'm saying is it was so crude and, you know, what could just be done instantaneously today was a big giant pain in the ass back then. And that's why you don't see many moving, you don't see many composite shots where the camera moves. I would mention too, that I believe it's that exact shot that was first tested as a, as a computer generated shot. And they believe it was the first CGI test, at least done for a motion picture. Um, Forgetting the name of the, of the, guy who did it, the test but they yeah, had it was the it. guy who worked on 2001 right and, and they contracted him and they kept waiting and they weren't getting the results that they wanted but spielberg was saying if it hits it's going to be 
it's going to be extraordinary. Right. And again, that was one more of those really tough sells. He went into the studio and told them before he made Jaws, he wanted to make this movie. And they, how much is it going to cost? And he said two and a half million dollars. And the producers, <laughs> the producers about, you know, s- did a spit take. They walked out and, and they said, why did you say that? And he said, well, I felt like that was about all that they could. That was the only number that they could hear and not just say no. And so they thought that was ridiculous. Well, then Jaws comes along and he makes Jaws and it's a big hit. And so he was able to to maneuver better. But it still went from like six million to eight million to nine million. And then they thought it was going to be like eleven point five and it was twelve point five, I think. Hmm. Which doesn't sound like anything now, but it was a lot of money then. Right. Because wasn't Star Wars like eight or nine, something like that? It, I think I it ballooned so. a like little nine. bit. I think it ended up being 10, 11, 12, something like that, but it was... But less than this. Yeah. This was more expensive than Star I, I believe so, yeah. I always uh, have questions about the keyboard player. <laughs> Is the keyboard player a guy they conscripted? Uh, he's really good at the keyboards. We'll give him clearance and bring him in. Or is yeah, he just one of the guys so. that happens to know how to play? No, I think they got him from the Episcopalian church. <laughs> right. Yeah. They gave him cl- like level four clearance. <laughs> he got more rhythm than a Baptist. <laughs> I've just always kind of thought he must be the one guy in the crew that's got clearance already. That Oh, I, I took lessons when I was a kid. I'm pretty good. You know, I used to play in a band. We did Doors. Hey, I want to see his movie. That's the movie that I've. What's he been doing for the last? He's in a Doors cover band at the beginning, nineteen sixty nine. Here we get this dolly shot that I always remembered, just because we track over to a not a character but a an object, and then it freezes, giving us a clue that something's going on. There, uh, one of oh, there he goes. He gets to Lance talk. Henriksen's actual shots where he gets to be in the movie. I don't know, and we might be on frame right on the VHS. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, two, he had a line the though. Principles are there. He had a line. That they probably cut. They probably cut from one. Or side they or the they panned over in the panning well, scan. Look there though. You can see his Roscoe. He's yeah, got, he's got his gun there. So he's like their bodyguard <laughs> or something, man. He's always with them, and he's got that gun at the ready. <laughs> Shaving cream. See, and I just don't care how fake it looks. It's beautiful to me. And you could put this in a movie you think now. It looks fake. Yeah, it's fakey. Of course, it doesn't look like well, it's anything being, it's real. Being generated by the spaceship, right? Yeah, but it's. I mean, if I'm looking at it, I'm not seeing a real cloud. I'm seeing a special effect. But I love it. Oh. Looks pretty good to me. Yeah, I think. Hey, those guys, it's the spaceships are doing. We're, that. I, we're, there was did no negativity detected in what I said. <laughs> I didn't say it didn't look good. It doesn't look no, real. You said it was a special effect. It is. It's very obviously a special <laughs> effect. And and hearkening back to the Ten Commandments re- reference earlier, that's what it looks right. like. That's true. And that's yeah. great. And if you put it in a movie now, I wouldn't complain. Well, he would. He'd another put of those. The next, he'd put it in Raiders, right, over the opening mm-hmm. of the... There's a lot of boom-up-to-reveal shots in this movie, aren't there? Yeah. Just a lot of them. I want to point out that in the, the these buildings, these little structures that they built, how 70s, the little stripey like decision to put little stripes on the side. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great 70s design element. There's always yeah. little like red and blue stripes on things yeah. back then. Yeah, but no, but no big cool letters. 
or numbers. True, because right? no, none of that. It's going to sound weird, but to reference this, but I've been watching a lot of different strokes recently, like very early, <laughs> and, that, and every single episode, those kids are wearing like jersey shirts, like that have big numbers on the front and stripes around the sleeves. Every and it was, that's and cool. I remember, yeah, that's what I wore when I was little. Stripes and big numbers were extremely popular in the late seventies. There's a big special effects money shot right there. It's, a, it's incredible. And now here's where, yeah, you don't dare move the camera on that shot, right? <laughs> like that would have yeah. been, a, that would have been a tough one. It's got a huge laugh. There's this guy with his little yep. 110 camera, but of course the kids today, they have no idea what that is. <laughs> well, plus he's among a sea of other cameras too. It really doesn't need to take that shot. Yeah. Now here's the, here's where the effect, do you guys, how do you guys feel about the proximity I've always been a little taken out here where I'm like, this is a little too close. Yeah, it doesn't, there's something fakey about it. It just feels like something would be upsetting their ability to stand up or something would be going on here. It's too close. And Lacombe is so cool. He's so cool about all of this stuff. I would, uh, last night I was really struck when I was watching it uh, on our bigger screen that it, it looked like it was right there. Is this the first time Lacombe's seen a UFO or no? That's a question that always comes up for me. He doesn't seem that awestruck by it. He seems very business. Is that just because he's so professional that he's not going to allow himself to just be jaw-dropped here? Or has he had experience? Did he have an experience once that drew him to all this? I don't know. Hmm. I've always wondered about how he plays. Again, Mitch talking about the character we don't know much about the character. Maybe he's not very well drawn, so maybe it's really hard to get a read on what this is to him, the scene is to him, exactly. Right. Okay, here's the moment where we know the marriage is over. <laughs> yeah, this is... I'm sorry, but this do, shouldn't do have happened. Need, do we need that? Hell no. That's one of the worst no. parts of the whole movie. It's completely unnecessary. And there's the cookie. Is that the cookie UFO that they refer to earlier? We should give a shout out to uh, George Jensen, who was the illustrator that designed all these ships, as I understand it, at least. Um, oh, yeah. Definitely did an amazing job coming up with multiple designs that they were able to pull off. Here comes the moment that is also another big laugh in the movie when uh, when Dreyfus finally makes it down to the to their level. It's interesting that our um, the character that brings us to the mothership arrival is Melinda Dillon. It's Jillian. She's the one who sees it before everybody else, really, I think. Geographically, it doesn't really make any sense, you know, that she would see it first, but she's higher up than they are. You know, it's funny. All so many of Spielberg's movies exist in a world where Star Wars exists, right? And and since Star Wars had, you know, it, it doesn't inform like all the popular culture of the bedrooms and everything else. Mm-hmm. But we do get R two D two here coming up. Now, was that right. was that done for the theatrical, or is that is this a shot from that was done later? It was, it was done. No, it was done. It was done. So they did it before it in, Star yeah, Wars. There's yeah, R2-D2. See, there he is. There's R2 right there hanging off the... Oh, yeah. And it's bef- before Star Wars even comes out that they built that model, no doubt. That's right. Yeah. yeah so it was a, there was a little 
tip of the hat to each other. So obviously that shot is one of the most iconic shots in movie history. And in terms of lighting, it is interesting that the lighting of the people is meant to look like the ship is a big shadow. You know, originally it was conceived as something that would black out the stars and later it was changed to be this city of light. So you see this a big shadow creeping across everybody, and yet on the wide shots, it's, you know, they're, yeah, right there. But they changed their mind in later and uh, made it a ship that was illuminated. I remember reading as a kid this interview with Spielberg where he said he was up like on Mulholland Drive and he was a little stoned, and he laid uh, on the hood of his car and looked at the city upside down and that's where he got the idea for, mm, for right. the design of this thing. And then I and then I never saw that interview again. And I thought, did I make that up? You know, <laughs> I, I've uh, heard that too. And, and then and then in the Spielberg biography, it's, it's the Joseph McBride book, he found mm. that interview. And, right. ah. So I didn't make it up. And it's I also heard that like after the India sequence, they he was driving back to the hotel or something, and there was some kind of a power plant or something on the road that was all lit up at night. And that was another thing that gave him the idea to make it be this big city of light. We just had the under, upside down city thing with Total Recall as well. Remember, where <laughs> there's the funny yeah. moment right there. Yeah, that gets a big <laughs> laugh. One guy just can't hold it in. <laughs> so my question about this director's cut: Do you think that they did any digital cleanup to? make it look as absolutely perfect as it could hmm. i don't think so um i i hadn't read about that they did any work on it like i know in blade runner they went back to the original 65 millimeter elements to recomposite those shots but i don't think they did here they just I'm did a sure. really quality scan of the of the negative huh? yeah i think so and again just knowing a lot of the compositing work that they did on this movie was on very large negative stuff and um some of it done like directly in camera i think it's it just looks really good we should probably acknowledge the necks of the two gentlemen standing there um those are like the broadest <laughs> necks i've never noticed that before but he had two guys stand there with really wide necks had to be conscious decision like we get high nick here in a minute right it's not, is it right? Yeah, he's coming up and it's really, there's another See, Spielberg dolly like a, on the keyboard. He just taught me in a Baptist right there, Mitch. He just, <laughs> he just, <laughs> he has a new religion now. <laughs> this really did influence how sci-fi movies were lit. You know, that, that, the extreme backlight shafts of smoky light long shadows i mean this really set a trend yeah. it's it's such a simple thing but especially in this instance where there's so much darkness that has to be disguised because they're in a sound stage the importance of that backlight to separate the mm -hmm. figures you know and it's really subtle but it's but it's it just puts yeah. that out outline. Look at that shot. The outline's all around all those guys. Mm-hmm. It's sort of nostalgic thinking about, you know, uh, the fact that everybody 
in this scene. They're all on the same page, getting along. <laughs> no, no necessarily political divisions. You know, if if we, this movie were made today, there would be a subset of people here that thought all the, what they were looking at was some sort of conspiracy bullshit. Right. Well, the, or there would be a piece of shit like security head of security trying that spots him. You know, and and right. he shouldn't be here but, and doesn't care yeah. about what's happening behind him and yeah but it is but weirdly enough it is so informed by watergate and oh yeah conspiracy yeah. it's just that everybody's everybody agrees that there's a conspiracy <laughs> uh, <laughs> therefore they're all against it you know as opposed to splitting into and as, right, and as long as our the people's front and the people's front of judea right and as long yeah. as our main characters in on it then it's not really a problem either that there's i mean he gets to see it he's here so, eh, so what? Sure. So what? That this is going to be completely—they're going to completely lie to the public about this, no doubt. Like, never, nobody will ever be the wiser. They'll make up some story about what happened to him to tell his family, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah. All of that's like very, uh, uh, you know, something that if would be a, a, driving a plot in a movie today for sure. Right. If there is a legitimate sequel to this movie, it would be about uh, Terry Gar trying to figure out because you know clearly he's gone. And nobody's going to say what really happened to him that she would because she's, you know, she's going to be wanting some child support at some point. And no, they, it's, they no so. doubt had a story. They have a story for her. He died. He definitely passed away. And, you know, they okay. pay her off in one way or another. You know, he, oh, he had this life insurance policy you didn't know about. So just don't worry about it. I don't know if you guys know. Have you guys never heard that theory that E.T. is the un- unofficial sequel to this, and that e- yeah, E.T. is yeah. the deformed Neary or whatever, deformed by light that space travel? Oh no, no, uh, I've never heard, heard, heard that? that. I have, I have heard that, and it it was some idea people have that he's returning to his family in sort so, of a way, so that he, <laughs> so dumb, so that he could be so a, dumb. a surrogate father figure to another, and then leave him too, child of divorce, and then yeah, and then he leaves him again. It, it makes That's absolutely like... no sense. <laughs> Well, in a way, that makes perfect sense, actually. <laughs> it's it's like, did you oh, yeah, somebody, I forgot why I don't like this place. <laughs> Let me phone home. We were just watching this with, we were, we were, this has uh, subtitles mm-hmm. um, for the hearing impaired. Did you see that that just said, Spaceship Plays Main Theme from Jaws? Oh, no. Oh, wow. Did you read that? <laughs> yeah. That's funny. That is funny. <laughs> I mean, but if you're hearing impaired, how, do you know what under, that means? I know there are levels of understanding of that caption that that are <laughs> beyond me. <laughs> Hissing, indistinct chatter. And this is where Archer said, "If that kid doesn't come out of that spaceship, I'm going to be really mad." That's what he said when, he, <laughs> when this opened up. He knew somebody was coming, and he better be that kid. So he got a little he got a little impatient, I'll say. Well, when my daughter saw the the aliens, she's like, "That's it. That's Aww. what they look like. That's all they look like." Said, well, at the time, that's what everybody yeah said the aliens I like. like. Except for the spider one, somebody's got to help me with a couple of the aliens. I want to talk about a couple of these guys okay. when they start showing. Well, up. the first one you see is clearly like they were being very ambitious, and I think that was the only one that worked. <laughs> yeah, they tried a bunch of different tricks. Including like monkeys on roller skates, right? Yeah. Right. Am, am, yeah. 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 <laughs> like, Can you imagine? Like... <laughs> oh my gosh. And they say the 80s were, you know, in, infected by cocaine uh, insanity, you know, like whoever came up with monkeys on roller skates. You know, it's funny. This was. I don't know. I... This is the producer, you know, the amount of cocaine that was being distributed around on this movie. Is oh, pretty, pretty yeah. Incredible. That's yeah. true. Yeah. 
the Phillipses were known, <laughs> well known for that. Yeah. You know, it's a funny thing about the design of the aliens here and that this became the standard for a long time for what an alien would mm-hmm. look like. And I just recently well, watched the uh, documentary about the movie Galaxy Quest, of which DreamWorks made and Spielberg had a certain amount of input in, where the aliens mm-hmm. were uh, octopus-like aliens. And that mm. Spielberg said, told, called Stan Winston and told him, that can't be. They're too ugly. You got to do more Close Encounters style aliens. And they like freaked out. And it was a whole uh, a bit of a problem for a while until he finally relented and said, okay, you're right. Well, now <laughs> it's kind of weird. Mm. Now it's more the tentacle alien is now right. the given. Okay, there's our friend, here, Jay here Allen he Hynek. Here, stroke your beard. The guy who coined. Uh, oh, yeah, that's yeah, that's convincing. That, yeah. <laughs> he, he coined the term <laughs> Close Encounters and gave the classification system, which we get for the title. So yeah. anyway, I, anyway, I thought it was interesting that Spielberg kind of set the standard for a movie alien or what people in real life thought aliens look like even. Well, you know, and it's not that, that he completely invented that. I mean, no. you know, yeah. those, those, those accounts that, right. uh, you know, people have had of what aliens look like right. there, there was a, a precedent right i'm not saying he invented it i'm saying he set the standard for movies that's what from then remember on remember the names of barney and yeah it's, betty. it's Be- betty and barney and i can't mm. remember it's either hill or miller i can't remember but there's the movie with uh james earl jones and uh, estelle parsons i think um played them so my daughter said, is Amelia Earhart going to come out of there? And <laughs> I thought there was an Amelia Earhart silhouette somewhere. Did oh, I, wow. Did I Where miss it? Where would she be? I was looking for it. There's maybe that di- was her to the right. Was that Was that? I'm her? not sure. Or oh. maybe she's in this bunch. Here comes the kid. You need a female pirate or pilot looking person, but I don't see one. Yeah, this moment works. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. That kid's so great. Carrie Guffey's mm-hmm. incredible for that age. I couldn't even get Archer to stay still for a picture at that age. <laughs> this is actually a, a very important line to dialogue because it is answering the question of, like, what is the drive of this character and what is this movie about? And that line of, I just want to know that it's really happening is actually legit for, you know, if this were really happening to you, you wouldn't want to know about the details of the alien culture, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you, it would just be, is this is this real? <laughs> like, is this really happening? And I think that's good enough. So the fact that he ends up being the chosen one ends up being kind of a bonus. You know, we've gotten this line of dialogue of, is this real? And, and it, you know, he's, I don't know. Now decisions have been made about Roy Neary's destiny here. My daughter's response to this, she's 25, was that she thought the film was ultimately kind of boring and kind of a letdown. And Hmm. I think it's interesting because I still find it compelling and thrilling 
And I don't know whether that's because I connect with when I first saw it or it seems so weird now compared to what we're used to with movies in terms of how they're structured and, and put together. Like the fact mm-hmm. it, it, and it and I love 2001 and in a weird way it reminds me of 2001 in how open it is for the last 40 minutes or whatever. It's really just about the experience mm-hmm. and the spectacle of this of this encounter. So I don't know. Like I, it's it's hard for me to to see it through. I guess a twenty five year old's eyes. Yeah, impossible. Yeah, I couldn't disconnect from my nostalgia, or all the other things that go into me watching this movie again and again. I could, okay. So that that little thing that just got spidered down there, that spider a- alien. So it's a big marionette. Right. And, we don't see it again, do we? Uh, no. I mean, there's one more shot here of it raising its arms, and then it's gone. Well, you get this long shot here of oh, it right, kind of right, stretching yeah. itself out, and you can... So is that the same one that's standing up yes. in, a, in, a, in a couple minutes? Yes. Oh. And it's so tall, it has to get on all fours to get out of the spaceship, and then it can stand up. That's my assumption. Was, oh, yeah. Really? So that, that, this always bugged me. That just never looked real. It looks like... what's the, I can't think of the artist, the sculptor that... Uh, uh, is an Italian sculptor that makes stuff that looks like that, but yeah. I can't think of his name right now. Hmm. That's what it always looked like but, uh, to you me. You get no sense of whether it's so tall that it has to, because there's no scale. For me, there was no sense of scale. Yeah. Yeah, it was really, I really think it was the only one of those more ambitious designs that worked, and they just had to use, they felt like they had to use it so that this wouldn't be it. Because you really don't want this to be it, these kids, and then you get the the last one. But... um. I don't think they wanted this to be the introduction to the aliens. I think they wanted something a little bit more spectacular than what are obviously children in suits running around. I don't think anybody's going to be awestruck by this. It's It does something. I'm not saying it does. I, I like the little kids. I agree with you. It does something. No, but I totally agree. I don't, it's, like, it's like a herald. Yeah. yeah. But you're right. I mean, you know, in the intervening years since this movie came out, there's been this Spielberg and Lucas basically carved out so much of what we know in pop culture that I think that's why some people may not respond to this is because since the day they were born, they've seen echoes of this movie in everything they've watched on television. So it doesn't it doesn't have the freshness or impact of what we've experienced when we first saw it. And I guess I suppose maybe the effects look cheesy compared to modern effects. I don't know. Um, and even back then, structurally, it was taking a big gamble to have such a long sequence. I've never liked this part. <laughs> this part. Yeah, I know. It's just. I know it's so weird. It's also like the line of like, I want to clear it of every Christian soul in the it's like, huh? Well, yeah. I don't mind that coming from that guy. That's the kind of guy that says that, you know, but the, I don't know why we so need this kind of way women, to this. Two, two women in this entire group of astronauts, which just seems. And they work their whole lives. It just does not seem logical to me. Think about how, many, how much schooling they probably had and uh, um, all the experience they've had to go through to get to this point, And then Neary just gets thrown in there. I'm yeah. sure it's like totally insulting to these people. That patriarchy. Oh, it totally and he doesn't is. even have yeah. to wear sunglasses. He doesn't even have a kit. He's going to have to borrow stuff from all of them. Yeah, they've he, got their supply bags. Right. And he's going to have to borrow a toothbrush. Do you have? Do you have extra well, diapers? What's great or too is he looks. He 
he looks about four foot tall compared to them too. That's what's so great. I mean, I, and then that's totally intentional is that here's all these people that look like GI Joe action figures. And then you get little, little Roy Neary <laughs> is the one who gets accepted. Yeah. Do these other ones even go now? I don't think so. Yeah, they don't. Oh, they don't? I thought they all went. Oh, well, I don't think you ever see them go in there. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure you I mean, just see Neary go in and that's that. Now, well, I'll ask in a minute. It's it's there. the ultimate high school nerd fantasy. You know, you got the captains of the football team all ready to go, and you're the one that, you know, hates dodgeball, and then the cool people pick you to go to the party. Is he going to leave his family, Mommy? <laughs> Thankfully, she's got pictures. That she uh, well, and unfortunately, she to Terry Gar. She probably understands this all too much. Uh, if you think about <laughs> yeah. it. I, I can't believe that the rest of the astronauts aren't going to go. Well, they weren't going to just parade them out and say, pick one, were they? I don't know. That's what we just never really quite see, I don't think. Because we get this. And yeah, then, it's kind of. And I think this alien's pretty great. I will say that when I. Yeah, this is good. You never, you can't see so much detail in the old VHS. And the face is a little bit more obscured. And I almost maybe pr- prefer that. But this is pretty This is a pretty cool alien. I always thought that was a great cut. Mm. <laughs> match American match cut editing right on that hand move. And a little smile. And he looks like Barry. You, you know, yeah, it's, it's weird how much he looks like the kid. It's in three dimensions. You know, that's the one great thing about it. It's real. Mm-hmm. See, I'm telling you, that guy, he's not, he has been stricken. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Finally get a nice shot for Hendrickson. Yeah, Yeah, Lance in a a nice suit. (laughs) Oh, I guess we get Heineck again. It's no, no, it's just no women. It's so weird. Yep. It is, it is odd. Well, the okay, so the astronauts are not standing there anymore. So I guess yeah, you could say they, they walked they in. in. Maybe they did go. Oh boy, they just <laughs> so much resentment for Neri. Deep focus on this shot. Yeah. I mean, look at you can see everything. It's a, the kid on their left. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Now I just can't stop thinking about what the like the politics of inside of the ship are going to be for the next <laughs> few years it's between the, be Neri and the. <laughs> he's their favorite. Ugh, just drives unless, those unless, astronauts crazy. You know, to serve man. Hey, That's right. To, uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're just going to eat them. Now, here's a question, and this is just a... I, I could swear that the version I had, which was the special edition on VHS, this was... They went inside the ship and showed the camera floating right. around inside. Yeah, okay. the, special, the special edition was that was the deal it's like i'll show you the inside of the ship if you give me money so i can go out and reshoot the kind of stuff okay. that i really wanted to i thought shoot so and wasn't able to so and then he immediately said i never wanted to show the inside of the ship and, and yeah and he 
he sort of disavows that one, that version. Well, and I love, I mean, there's Joe Alves. That's another guy that we should have. Alves, maybe, is how it's pronounced. Another guy we should say something about. He's pretty good production design on this movie, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then old Khan, great film editor, Michael Kahn. Well, Todd, any final thoughts before we jump off what has been a very long commentary? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's it's one of those movies that I guess is so, uh, that I know it so well that I kind of feel like I didn't do a good service to it because I've been thinking about it for, you know, decades. And so I, I <laughs> there's so much to say about it. I, I don't know. Um, it still holds up to me. Um, it is interesting how being older, just being an adult, but also just the time we're living in changes a perception of a movie but i still think in the pantheon of film it's a very amazing accomplishment and certainly for me personally just in terms of how i think about how to make movies it's one of those just go-tos of like how how is the scene in close encounters i can kind of use that as a template for how to construct a scene sometimes john final thoughts uh honestly no i feel like i got them all out as we're watching the movie i mean we never there were certain things we didn't discuss about it, about the background of the movie, but that's not really for a commentary. I mean, I guess most people know that Steve McQueen was supposed to be the first choice, and I think that's an interesting story about him turning down the role. But um, uh, you could go find that on a on a making of do- yeah, documentary. Yeah, I would, I would. I would point everybody to uh, to the um, the Internet Archive, which is this strange site where all sorts of things show up, and there are a bunch of old back issues of Cine Fantastique that have been scanned in, mm-hmm. which is a magazine that doesn't ex- exist anymore. And there's a great issue about Close Encounters and all of the effects work. So I point you in that direction. We'll put a link to that on the on the Facebook page. There's about a 90-minute long making of Doc on YouTube as well that you can watch. It's a good resource. Yeah, I have the Laserdisc, the old CAV Laserdisc of the movie, and it has uh, an interesting collection of interviews and commentary that I don't think exists on any of the DVDs. Um, so, you know, if you are a completist and you really want to see all the material, that is, there's some different stuff on the Laserdisc if you can find it. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thanks, Todd, for, for uh, spending the time with us. And sure, we will see you all later on another Alien Minute production or maybe on 007 by 7. Yeah. Coming soon. Bye, everybody. Bye.